Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. The Carl Nelson Show. And Grand Rising Wake Up Squad, and thanks for getting your day started with us again as we continue our salute to Black History Month with Ashra Amira Kwesi. Now, the chemitologists are known for their work on the African origin of civilization. Before the Kwesis, the national assistant to the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, Brother Ishmael Muhammad, who happens to be just one of uh, Elijah Muhammad's sons. He'll be here. He's going to preview this Sunday's Savior's Day event in Detroit. But to get us started, Maryland State Public Defender Natasha Dartig is here. Good morning, Ms. Dartig. Good morning. Thank you for coming back to us, helping us out here, trying to figure out what you do in your job as the state public defender. First, I, I, you know, I got to ask you this. What's the difference between the, uh, the state attorney and the state public defender? Is there a difference between those two uh, offices? Well, thank you for having me back. And there's a really important difference. So the state attorney, those are the individuals that prosecute people when it's alleged that they have committed a crime. Public defenders are the individuals that represent those from marginalized communities that cannot afford counsel to defend themselves when the state comes against them with all the resources that they have. So we essentially protect individuals. We make sure and ensure that their rights are not violated. All right. So how do, how, do, how do you determine who's eligible for a, a service from your office, from the state public defender's office? How do you, you know, is there a money threshold? How do you decide that? So essentially it's a two-step process. We, uh, within the public defender's office, do not make that determination. But if you find yourself charged with an offense, the first step is that you would go to a local commissioner's office. The commissioner makes the eligibility determination, and it based on your income. So you essentially have to be shown to be indigent, but they take into consideration not only how much money you're making, through if you're working, but if you receive any type of um, additional services, they take into account how much it costs for you to live day-to-day, your expenses, and then they determine whether or not you qualify, and then they'll send you over to our office to do the additional paperwork to be assigned a lawyer. Okay. So did you guys represent Marilyn Mosby? 
The uh, federal public defender's office did. I am the state public defender. Uh, she was charged with a federal offense. So, yes, she was re- represented by a public defender, but not for my office. All right. I'm glad you clarified that. Four after the top, they are family. Just join us. Natasha Dartigas here. She's the Maryland State Public Defender. And there's been some changes in the juvenile laws in Maryland. Help us out here. Uh, first, if you can, you know, start with the Juvenile Re- Restoration Act. So, uh, essentially, the uh, Juvenile Justice Re- uh, Restoration um, Act We lost uh, Miss Darty. Hopefully, we haven't lost Miss Darty here. I just hear it went blank on us. She's the Maryland State Public Defender. Kevin, have we lost Miss Darty? Uh, family, I think we may have lost uh, Attorney Darty here. We're trying to figure out if she's back on the line with us. But just, just remind you that tomorrow is, is Friday. Tomorrow we'll give you another chance to free your mind. It's an open phone Friday. Reach out to us at 6 a.m. right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If we're in the DMV, run FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, before we left, we were talking to Attorney uh, Natasha Darty. She's the Maryland State Public Defender. I think a line dropped. And she was about to inform us about the Juvenile Resta- Restoration Act. And also we're going to ask about the second look law, as well as a new firearms law that's taking place in Maryland. Also, in 2022, there's the, 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 a juvenile law that I'm not sure if everybody knows about. It. It's under 13. If you're under 13, you can be charged. And we want to find out who she reports to. She's back on the line. So good morning again, Ms. Teague. Sorry about that. She there, Kevin? Okay, so Kevin's still trying to get back on. So uh, let, let me just tell you, coming up next week, the last week of uh, Black History Month, uh, we're going to be joined by Dr. F- uh, Jerome Fox, who's going to be here. Also, we're going to have uh, we're going to have uh, Dr. Malani Kernga is going to join us as well. Some of the folks as we close out Black History Month, but you know, for us, Black History goes on 24/7. Every day is Black History. This is why we call it classroom. That's why you're going to hear from us, the master teacher later this morning. That'll be Ashra Kwe. She's joined by his is the wife, Ashra uh, Mera Kwesi, is going to be here with us as well. It's been a minute since we've spoken with Mera Kwesi, but they are chemitologists, the griots in our community, well-known, have been doing this for, for decades, what they do. You know, they work on the African origin of civilization. Mera does a presentation, too, about, you know, she was the first person who told us about the fashion statements, all the fashion statements that were started that we see now was started by our ancestors and there's some of the things that we don't know about. So they'll be here later this morning. So let's hopefully we have uh, attorney, Maryland State Attorney, Public Defender, Natasha Dottig back with us as we continue to, uh, okay, she's back. All right, the Juvenile Restoration Act, you was about to tell us that before the line dropped. So yes, uh, in what we're facing is there, the Maryland legislature has a bill where they're trying to roll back uh, the law as it it affects um, juveniles. One of the things that the law in its current state is looking to do is to expand jurisdiction. That essentially means that we're going to bring children as young as 10 years old into the uh, criminal um, justice system. When just two years earlier, it was determined that uh, the youngest that a child should be involved in, in the criminal justice system was um, 13. So we're going back to this kind of on crime mentality, which will do nothing but harm our children, especially children coming, black children coming from marginalized communities. 
and, and basically you 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 have nothing to do with that. You just have to follow what what you get from the state legislature, what the governor signs off on. Is that correct? Am I correct in saying that? Well, uh, we we were not we're not just laying down. Um, we are essentially um, fighting back. We're, we're we're pushing back. We're trying to educate um, members of the the legislature, but we're also offering um, amendments. So. Uh, places in the law as it exists that require um, change. So, for example, we're educating that children under the age of 13 should be um, addressed. There's delinquent behavior. We must address what is the underlying problem of the child through services and and interventions. Those are the things that uh, will change delinquent behavior. Yeah, and you say you make adjustments and make recommendations, but who do you report to? So uh, essentially, I'm appointed by the board, by a board of trustees. So I am a quasi-independent in that we are a state agency. But um, unlike the other secretaries, I don't report to the governor, and I am not elected official. So essentially, I, I can advocate on behalf of, of the community uh, without any fear of, of repercussion, like, for example, my counterpart, a state's attorney who was elected. Yeah, but you, but your your job is at the mercy of of this panel, is that correct? So, so essentially, my job is uh, I'm appointed by a board of trustees. So yeah, so the board has the authority for good cause to uh, to remove me um, because they're the ones who placed me in this role. All right, then the board of trustees who appointed them. So the board of trustees is appointed by uh, the governor. Okay, so ultimately, it's still still in, in in his hands. Now, last time we talked, there was some issue of, about funding. Uh, has that been clarified? Has that been cleared up? So the, there is always an issue uh, about funding. We are under uh, resourced and overburdened in terms of workload. Uh, we are in the process now, the budget process, of requesting additional funds. But the challenges that we face is. For example, our counterparts, our state's attorney's office, uh, continuing are, are continuing to be funded, um, whereas we um, lack. So you're, you're continuing to have a system that is, is not um, balanced, uh, but we continue to fight for, for resources so that we can support those who work at the public defender's office so that they can, in fact, advocate on behalf of the community, especially that we are the ones who advocate on behalf of the marginalized. So it's really important that we are resourced to be able to do the job and do the job well. All right. I just got a tweet question for you. Tweeter says, please ask her about House Bill 8114 that Adrian Jones and uh, somebody else were championing. Just lost it on my, t- on my phone here. Clipping good. Sponsored. So, yeah. So currently uh, there is House Bill uh, 814 and Senate Bill 744, and that is a juvenile uh, justice reform bill. And that's the bill where they're looking to uh, expand the age of jurisdiction in which a child can be brought into a criminal uh, court. They're looking to expand that to uh, to 10 to 12-year-olds. So essentially they're looking to bring uh, elementary school kids in, into court. Uh, we know that this disproportionately impacts um, black children, especially black children from marginalized uh, communities. So when people hear that, um, they should be frightened because it's taking us back to that era where they saw um, our children, black children, as um, super predators. And there was over incarceration. And instead of moving forward 
uh, to things that are evidence-based and that worked, we're starting to see a move backwards to that um, era of fear where our children were not seen as children. Yeah. Does any other state do that, or is Maryland one of the few? Do you know? So um, prior to 2022, Maryland was deemed one of the worst violators of human rights for children, especially in the criminal um, legal space. What we saw in 2022 was a change in the law that recognized the way Maryland was doing things was not um, conducive to creating safe environments, but we were treating our children poorly. So that's why you had the uh, JJRA, the Juvenile Justice uh, Rest, uh, Reform Act of 2022. Um, it sets a bar as to how we treat children, and it requires services to be provided. We are now in 2024, less than two years later, and they're looking to roll that back, um, put more authority in the state's attorney's office to prosecute, which generally means to place uh, kids in detentions and jails, as opposed to putting the emphasis on providing services to deal with the underlying problem of lack of education, poverty, and all the things in which we find are the true sources of crime. All right, hold that thought right there, Attorney Natasha Dantigue. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, let's look at the 2022 juvenile law that focuses on under 13, uh, eight children of under 13. Family, what are your thoughts about these new laws that are taking place in Maryland? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876, and we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. And good morning, family. Thanks for waking up with us 20 minutes after the top of the hour. Our guest is a Maryland State Public Defender. Her name is Natasha Dottie. She's a Howard Law grad. She's got that tough job there in the state of Maryland. And she's trying to look out for our children because we're discussing the uh, 2022 juvenile law and also the Juvenile Restoration Act. And we're also going to take a look at the second look law. It's about firearms. But, you know, speaking about the, uh, the, the 2022 general law for the under 13, children under 13 can be charged as criminals. Now, let me ask you this, and this is just a, this is not a legal question, but just a personal question, because we know that most of the, the youngsters who get in trouble because of societal reasons, not because it's in our DNA or people who look like us, they're our children. Do you think if it was the other way around that they would it wouldn't be so quick to lock them up at, at such a tender age? Uh, I, I 100% think so, because the reality is that our, our system, our criminal justice system, uh, has serious um, bias, and, and the bias is negative towards uh, people of color. So if we were talking predominantly about um, other children that were not black children, the conversation would be different, because the reality is that in 2022, um, 80. Six percent of the children that were detained in Maryland uh, were black children. And do they do they understand that? Do they look and find out why the reason why our, our children make up the, uh, and even the, the justice system, you know, is is, uh, is against our folks. We make up the most in there. And people say because we're committing the most crimes. I heard one black uh, commentator say that. That's why we we're locked up more than anybody else. But they don't go on into the depth of what's the cause of the problems. But if we can start and correcting them at a younger age, they won't be adult or career criminals. Is, is that a, a tough argument for you to get over to some of these legislators, some of the people that you have to talk to? 
So the, the difficulty, and, and the truth is um, that children, especially black children from marginalized communities, do bear the burden of societal ills. So we're talking about poverty, violence, discrimination, lack of access um, to education um, and, and health care. And that is uh, proven, understood, um, and, 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 and fact-based. Um, um, the problem that, that we have is the need for uh, immediate uh, a reaction without taking the time to pause and think and actually base decisions on what the evidence and, and the facts uh, show. People want immediate response, so and, and they're, they're reacting out of, of fear versus facts. So you see the reaction is immediate, let's lock them up, as opposed to address the underlying issues that will actually create safe communities and allow everybody to thrive, especially children, um, that it's important that um, everyone t- feel, um, feel safe. All right, 24 after the top. Our brother Haki's joining us. He's online too. He's calling from Baltimore. Good morning again, brother Haki. You're on with uh, attorney Natasha Dati. Yes, uh, good morning, uh, sister Natasha, da- uh, attorney Natasha Dati. Good to hear you. Pleasure. Good morning. Great, great, great. Well, my question uh, so I was there uh, uh, for uh, House Bill 814 in the Judiciary Committee. I did not stay the full time. I I saw um, uh, Speaker Jones uh, testify and um, Judiciary Chair Kleppinger, and then I stayed to see um, State's Attorney Aisha Brayboy and Ivan Bates, and I believe that might have been the Montgomery County uh, State's Attorney. Is that correct, or Howard County? Which one was that? Were, were you present? I thought I saw you. Yes, I uh, testified in opposition because this will right. harm our children. Yes, yes, yes. No, I, I, yes, I couldn't stay. I didn't hear those to testify. You know, uh, try to uh, against it. But in terms of the Judiciary Committee, and it's still in first reader, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right, uh, brother Carl. We we gonna um, we gonna invoke our brother Steve Coakley here. If I may, well, hold up, though, right there, the, brother Haki. Maybe, sure. maybe you or uh, uh, attorney uh, Natasha can tell us. You fought against this, but did you get the support of the black elected officials, or which side were, uh, were they on this in this debate when this came up on the floor? So, um, essentially, the the black caucus is um, promoting and and always has looked to how can we protect. Um, uh, black children and and the ways that we can best address public safety with a mind that um, our, our children need um, to be protected. Um, we are currently, as uh, the caller stated, in the first phase, and um, we are working with the, the, the Black Caucus to determine what amendments that we can put in to safeguard and make sure um, our children are not harmed by any changes um, in, in the law. Um, and they're being deliberate and intentional and uh, looking to what does the evidence say is the best practice to addressing any issues in terms of delinquency. All right. That's good to know that they're on our side because we we send them to Annapolis to represent us. And hopefully they represent the feelings of what most of us feel about this, this particular issue. So, Brother Haki, I'm going to let you continue. Yes. No. And, and, and that is where I was going partially, Carl. But 
I, you know, as I mentioned, we we invoke Steve Coakley here, and we and we name names, if I may. Uh, so when I was there, it, it you know, and heard, um, you know, there there was certainly some pushback, uh, particularly uh, Delegate Crutchfield. Um, you know, she she expressed uh, dismay, um, you know, with uh, the speaker, uh, and I, if I'm if I'm if I'm hearing that correctly, and this was supposed to be like a compromise bill. That's how it was described. And I'm I'm just wondering because you have, you know, for instance, some uh, MAGA perhaps individuals that may be on in the Judiciary Committee who may, you know, they, they may start younger. They may they may want, you know, children uh, six and seven, you know. So I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what was the, the extreme end, what was this so-called compromise that you know that, that 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 the speaker and and judiciary and Mr. Clippinger, you know, apparently uh, is is saying that they they're doing. And 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 let me just say also, uh, there was recently, uh, well, actually, was it last night or two nights ago, where uh, you know Governor Westmore he was on uh, Fox News um, with uh, the the both the state's attorneys. Uh, uh, Aisha Brave Boy and, and uh, Ivan Bates, and they were, I didn't see it, but they were with Armstrong Williams, uh, his, you know, special broadcast speaking about uh, juveniles. And, you know, so, I, you know, I just put it all out there for you. And, but, but I do, like I said, I wanted to name names. And that's what we have to do in terms of knowing, like, who, for instance, in judiciary, uh, you know, where it's going to go, you know, who's for, who's against. And, you know, because that's the first stage to, to, you know, to get this out of committee. But you, I, I know you're on top of it. And um, and if you can just say who else, I, I know I saw a brother, Kobe Little, you know, um, that was there. You know, I'm sure he's, you know, as he expressed to me that he's, you know, working, you know, to, to stop this as well. So, so I just want to say thank you for, you know, standing up. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Carl. All right. Thank you, Brother Haki. Go ahead, uh, Attorney Natasha Dautigue. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you to the to the caller. And uh, I really wanted to emphasize that we have a strong leadership, especially um, in, in, in the Black Caucus, that is really pushing to making yeah. sure that uh, our children are not negatively impacted. One of the warriors that is always on the front in terms of juvenile um, justice issues, uh, you know, we have Senator uh, Jill Carter, who's fighting on, on the Senate side, her colleagues, Senator Sidnor, Senator Muse, uh, Senator Charles are also joining in the fight to make sure that um, things are evidence-based. And then we have uh, warriors on the on the side of uh, the House of Delegates. Um, as mentioned, Delegate uh, Crutchfield has been in the forefront. We have Phillips, we have Pasteur, we have um, Taylor, just to name a few, and they're led by um, the chairwoman of the Black uh, Caucus, uh, Delegate um, Wilkins. So they're really fighting to, to try to what is the best evidence approach to these issues in regards to um, public safety, and they're working to protect um, our, our children, and they need to be supported. Um, we need people to, to, to write letters, to, to make calls, especially those who are basically putting themselves out front um, to, to challenge the status quo. We, may, we have to make sure that they are supported. 
Right, 30 minutes at the top. Yeah, and I was going to ask you this. I'm glad you mentioned how the listeners can help. But the last time we talked about, and we're going to talk about the second look law in a moment and also the firearms law, but the last time we had a conversation, you were telling me you were looking for attorneys. Uh, is that still the case? Are you still trying to find folks uh, to, to, for your office? If so, what are the qualifications? So uh, essentially, in order to work at the public defender's office, you have to be um, licensed and barred in the state of Maryland. However, if you hold a license in another state, um, you have 18 months um, to essentially become licensed in the state of Maryland. There is a provision that will allow you to practice while you're getting your Maryland license. But um, we are hiring in all our divisions. We have offices throughout the state. So if you have a preference to be at the beach, we have an office there. If you have a preference to be in the mountains, we have an office there. Or you want to stay in, in um, more of an urban environment, Baltimore City is hiring, Prince George's. Um, we, we do great work in the courtroom. And as you can see, we're advocates uh, before the General Assembly as well. And they all report to you, all these different officers report to you, I take it. Yes, we have. Uh, I have leaders in the respective offices that, that help me out, but ultimately uh, the responsibility of making sure that we are, are resourced and uh, advocating for the community uh, rests on my shoulders. You know, you mentioned just uh, if you just have a law license, if you just graduated from, uh, from law school, can you just pass the bar? Can you, can you apply? Uh, you can you can apply, but we also look to what other experience uh, do you have uh, while you were in school during your summers? Did you where where did you um, work? We also take students uh, those who have graduated, but who perhaps have done a year of fellowship or uh, clerkship. Uh, we uh, take those uh, individuals um, as as well, and they start at entry level um, district court after um, training and, and, and support. But we uh, welcome everyone who is really passionate about um, doing this important work. All right. And we appreciate that you are, you know, in charge of the Maryland State Public's Office, Defender's Office. And we appreciate that you're doing that and also looking out for our folks as well. We've got to take a short break. When we come back, though, I want you to tell us about the second look law, also the new firearms law thing that was passed uh, last year. Family, you want to join this conversation with our guest? She's the Maryland State Public Defender. Her name is Natasha Tartig. She's a graduate of Howard Law. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes and your tweets. i got some more tweets for her right here in Baltimore on 1010. WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 22 minutes away from the top of the hour with Maryland State Public Defender Natasha Dottig. And I had some tweets for her as well as some more questions. So we're discussing especially the juvenile law changes in the state of Maryland. Before we go back to her, let me remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to hear from uh, Ashra Amira Kwesi, the chemitologist at Grills, and known for their work on African origin of civilization. But before that, Brother Ishmael Muhammad will join us. He's uh, one of the sons of Elijah Muhammad, actually uh, the top lieutenant to Minister is going to preview this Sunday's Savior's Day event that's going to take place in Detroit. And of course, tomorrow's Friday, and we're going to give you another chance to free your mind and think for yourself on our Open Phone Friday program. Begin promptly at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB, and also in the DMV on FM 
95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, uh, Natasha Dante, a tweet question here from Lisa, who lives in West Baltimore. She's one of our charter listeners who has been listening to us ever since we were started on 1010, and she's on her way to work. She says, thank you and your office for fighting for these young people, but your office needs funding. How can the public help you? Oh, so thank you for, for that. Um, and, and essentially, by uh, reaching out, especially at this critical time, reaching out to your uh, senators um, and, and delegates and expressing the need uh, that you want to see them supporting the public defender's office. They have the ability to provide more resources to our agency so that we can do the work uh, of fighting for our communities. Um, so if they hear from you, um, that also helps to, to, to move the, the needle to get us uh, more of the resources that we need to do the work. So thank you. All right. Thank you, Lisa, as well. 20 away from the top of the hour. The second look law, Attorney Natasha Dati, can you tell us what the second look law is about? So uh, second look legislation, there are a couple of uh, laws that are currently making their way that need uh, uh, support. And essentially it's a crucial tool and it looks to address uh, lengthening sentences, and it also is important because it addresses the biases that exist in, in the justice system. It will give an opportunity for individuals who have served lengthy sentences to have their sentences um, reevaluated and uh, hopefully be reduced because um, the reality is that people do change over time, and the way the laws are currently um, written, that the court does not have the ability um, after five years to review someone's sentence. So these new second look uh, laws will give the opportunity, for example, after 20 years, someone's sentence could be um, reviewed, determined that they are remorseful, rehabilitated, and also give them an opportunity to come back into uh, to society. Does that cover the, the fact that some people are trying to get their records expunged? Is, is that the same thing or something different? Is this under your parlay? So um, expungement is um, different. Second look is essentially that, giving somebody the, the, the second opportunity um, after they've shown themselves to be rehabilitated. Um, expungement essentially is uh, allowing you to remove things um, off your uh, record after um, a, a period of time. So, for example, um, maybe a misdemeanor uh, from, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when you were young and now you're in, in your um, uh, 30s. Um, we're pushing to have certain things automatically um, removed. We're not quite there um, yet, but um, that allows someone to have a, a clean start because anything on your uh, record can affect your opportunity for employment, housing, uh, and essentially those things are impactful and, and can change the trajectory of your life. Yeah, so right now you have to petition. It's it's there's no automatic after a certain amount of years. It don't you know like a bad credit report doesn't drop off. Uh, unfortunately, with the exception of uh, possession of marijuana, with the changes in the law of last year, but right now you do actually still have to petition uh, the court to have uh, those eligible offenses removed from from your record. And I'm glad you brought up marijuana here, 18 away from the top of the hour. Explain to us what's the difference, because I understand that it's still, it, it, the federal law is still against marijuana, but you have state laws that you allow you to have marijuana. Can you explain what what's the difference here? 
So essentially, uh, the the changes in, in the law was in regards to um, uh, personal use. You are still limited in terms of what you can uh, consume and uh, what you can have in in your home. Uh, the federal law states that you can't uh, consume it in in certain places. So you can't consume it in public parks. Even on under Maryland law, you cannot. Uh, consume it in in public and you can't consume it in 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 your car uh so you have to be mindful that there are restrictions as to where you can or cannot um use it but in terms of federal law it uh supersedes if you are for example in in certain areas in certain public buildings um and the like it still remains illegal so if if they're applying for a job with you and they and they uh they use marijuana. Is that is that a no? Uh, so um, we don't uh, promote uh, drug use, but um, that is not a criteria to determine um, employment at the public defender's office. All right, sixteen away from the top there. Now we've got some new firearms laws in the state of Maryland. I think they either took place late, late last year, or they're still in 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 commission studying those. Bring us up to date. What's going on with the new firearms laws? Uh, so there was a, a change in, in the law in terms of uh, possession in particular uh, from maximum penalty uh, from three to five uh, years. Uh, and that was another bill that we uh, fought, fought against because, uh, again, uh, the impact is essentially just bringing more uh, people of color into the criminal legal system. And we were trying to reduce uh, the effects of, of mass uh, in, incarceration. So we have numerous gun laws uh, on the books, uh, and that has not made our community safer. Um, what we need to do is to address the underlying issues uh, of, of poverty, uh, provide greater resources. Uh, people are living in food de- deserts, people without economic op- opportunity. That is where we need to put the to focus to change all what is happening in our communities to make them safer and truly reduce crime. All right, 15 away from the top of with our guest, Natasha Dartik. She's the Maryland State Public Defender. And you mentioned mass incarceration. That affects, you know, just all of us who are probably listening right now, you know, even though many of us don't have, haven't done anything illegal, but it seems like our people make up the, make up the highest percentage of people behind bars or people caught up in the, in the system. Is, is it a difficult conversation to have with these lawmakers that it's cheaper to keep us out of the system than in the system? It is, um, it's a challenging uh, a com- conversation uh, because uh, they're feeling the pressures of people want something um, now. We're a society where uh, the expectation is that we, we want it now, we want to see it now, uh, even though the evidence um, all shows that um, over, over time, pouring into communities, creating opportunities is where the true Results will be seen. Uh, lawmakers have have the pressure, and individuals are applying pressure based out of out of fear, as opposed to looking at the facts and looking to okay, what's going to prevent us down the line from being in, in the same place? Uh, you see, we pass these laws that increase um, penalties that incarcerate people, but year after year, the crime rate con- uh, continues to go up. And that's that's simply an indication that we're not addressing the underlying um, problem. And we need to shift our focus 
the putting resources into the community, providing in- interventions, and supporting those who are suffering. You know, we're using the squeeze a kid because <clears throat> I'm sure you're familiar with that uh, with that particular case. But a, a youngster is, is his age, a teenager. I think he's a teenager, or he was a teenager when he when he got in trouble. Uh, can you explain what would be the opposite instead of the you know? sending him to prison and then you know then he'll become probably that's like some grad school for for prisoners for convicts he'll, he'll become a seasoned criminal then send him to some sort of juvenile detention center what when it comes to making those decisions who does that do you have any say in that or is it just you got to go to the letter of the law whatever the, the state legislature passed so so essentially when someone is is uh, uh, convicted, there is a uh, sentencing uh, phase, and at sentencing, uh, both sides have the opportunity to um, to advocate, to provide information to the judge, and the judge makes the final determination as to what the, the sentence w- would be. So, in terms of of the defense, we advocate on behalf of the client. We provide mitigation in terms of what would better uh, serve not only the client. But we look to what's going to serve um, the the victim, what is going to promote um, healing and really address the concerns of the person affected um, by the crime. We we not only represent the the client, but we also look to what is going to um, empower uh, the victim so that they can regain control of, of, of their lives. Um, these are what victims really want, not simply to have somebody basically uh, thrown away because, you know, the criminal justice system itself can be very traumatic uh, to, uh, to to victims. And when we're thinking about solutions, it always has to be grounded in what is going to really provide um, healing, empowerment, and really uh, restore the victim. And usually those practices go hand in hand in terms of providing services and interventions for the person who has been found guilty of the offense. All right, 10 away from the top there. Let me ask you this, though. Maryland State Public Defender, Natasha Datik, what's the youngest person that you've seen caught up in the system? And what was the, what was the, what were they accused of? How far deep does it go? Prior, prior to the enactment of the Juvenile Justice Reform Act in 2022, we were seeing uh, children as young as five being placed um, in, in handcuffs. And, uh, you know, at, wait, wait, at hold on a second. Age, you said five. There, there were instances of children as young as five being placed in handcuffs. Wait, yeah. Wow. Wow. And, and that was it was extremely important in 2022 that we enacted the Juvenile Justice Re- Re- Reform Act because it did establish the minimum age um, re- requirement of of ten of ten years old. Um, and now, again, we're in a space where we're, we're, we're going backwards and um, casting a wider net to bring more children in, in the system as opposed to addressing what, is, what are the true underlying issues that lead to delinquent um, behavior and preventing them um, before the child gets to the point where they have to meet a public defender or be in, in the hands of, of law enforcement. I got to ask you stuff. Is that part of, is that the police rule that even if a five-year-old has committed a crime, they have to put him, he's a child uh, or she's a child. They have to be handcuffed. Is, is, is that part of their, I guess, part of the rule for, for police departments? Uh, 
for law enforcement? So prior, prior, so in 2022, it changed the the minimum age for a serious violent offense to be 10 years old, um, and a less serious charge to be to be 13. Um, is it necessary for a, an officer prior to then, when they were dealing with children, to, to handcuff children? I would I would say no, um, but I can't speak to whether or not it is their um, written procedure. That is how they handle children. Um, I find it personally offensive that um, you would be handcuffing elementary school uh, children. Uh, I, I can't speak to whether or not that is their actual procedure, but prior to 2022, we did see that practice. All right. And, and with children, too, since they're, if they're accused of, of a crime and they come to you, obviously they're not, they're not working, they don't have a job. So if they reach out to you, do you look at the, the parents' financial uh, positions before you make a decision whether or not to take the case or just because it's your child, you automatically take it? So uh, essentially, again, the, the determination is based upon the, the family uh, circumstance. Uh, because the reality is that yes, they are uh, they are children. They they are they are not um, working. Um, their capacity to understand and all the things um, is, um, is is limited. Uh, so we do look at the family circumstances in terms of again the commissioner will determine their eligibility. You know, I keep hearing that the young women now get more involved in in the criminal activity. Are you seeing that from your office as well? Um, I don't have the stats in terms of uh, women, but when we look at the the criminal legal system, um, and just speaking generally about um, children, still, um, you know, in 2022, 32% of our our state population uh, was uh, black children. But in terms of involvement in the juvenile justice system, we saw that 63%. Um, were uh, were referrals. Uh, the majority of those who are being detained tend to be um, boys, um, but we have seen an uptick in terms of um, women, girls, females being um, being arrested. Wow. Hold that thought right there. Uh, Maryland State Public Defender Natasha Dante. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in four minutes, though. Six minutes away from the top. I want to come back, though. Tell us again, because you said you're looking for lawyers. We need, we need black lawyers to get involved at this end of the legal uh, fight. And so uh, when you come back, tell us how they can reach you and reach your office and what do they need. Family, you want to join this conversation, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning, family. Minute after the top of the hour, our guest is Maryland State Public Defender Natasha Dati. Momentarily, we're going to speak with Brother Ishmael Muhammad. But let's wrap up with uh, Attorney Natasha Dati, who's the, as I mentioned, the Maryland State Public Defender. Uh, ch- during the break, Charles called in and he says he was kind of confused the, about the marijuana law in Maryland. Could you go over that for him? Because he wants, and he was sorry, in, in quantities of joints. In the, so I'm sorry, that's the way he put it. Uh, what's legal? What's illegal? Where can he go and smoke weed? That's how he put it. So, um, in, in regards to the Maryland law, simply put, I, I would say um, 
keep your weed at, at, at home. It's still against the law to be um, smoking in public. You cannot smoke uh, y- your car. So if you want to stay out of trouble, um, just just keep it at home. Uh, smoke it. Smoke it at home. Okay. Uh, you say you're looking for attorneys. We need some great black attorneys to join your your office. What do they need to have to get in, and how do they reach you? Is there a website? Yeah. So we um, we are in need of all um, attorneys who are um, passionate uh, uh, about the work, who care about um, a community, and are, are willing to to fight, especially on behalf of um, black and brown people from marginalized communities. And essentially, you can Google um, Maryland Public Defender, but our website uh, where there's a careers tab is opd.state.md.us. We're looking for lawyers. We're looking for core staff. We also take um, interns um, and students. Uh, So it's not just um, lawyers because our team of advocates uh, includes more than uh, just lawyers. So if you are a paralegal, a, a, a secretary, administrator, a social worker, or a student who is interested in um, public interest, public defense, has a passion for the community, um, c- come our uh, way. We're looking for uh, good people to do this um, important work. All right, and I got to thank you for what you do and looking out for our people in that job because that's a big job and, and it's, a, it's, serious, it's a critical area. You know, a lot of our folks get entangled in, in the system, that legal system, and then once you get involved, it get once you know, when we're talking about juvenile youngsters, once you get involved, it's hard to get to get out. So, if, my advice is just stay away. Don't try to get involved in that and, and have to fight that for the rest of your life and have to go to somebody like Natasha Dartik to help you out. Natasha Dartik, I want to thank you and thank you for the work that you do for our folks in Maryland. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to um, reiterate um, to have people kind of write to the members of the General Assembly. If you're really about making your community safe um, and, and decreasing crime, we really have to push um, for age-appropriate supports and services um, for our uh, children. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for the work that you do. I'm good to know that you're still there in, in the Maryland State Public Defender's Office. She's the top dog of there, if you will. She's in charge, and she's hires an attorney, so she mentioned all the support staff as well. So uh, check out the website that she mentioned. So we can, because if, if we don't look out for our people, who will? So it's our job to do it. So thank you again, Natasha Dati. All right, Thank family. you, sir. Three minutes after the top there. Assalamu alaikum, Brother Ishmael Muhammad. Welcome back to the program. Well, Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for the honor and privilege. Yes, sir. We're coming up on Savior's Day in Detroit. For the, for the folks who don't know what Savior's Day is, can you tell us how it all started? What year is this? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Yes, sir. 
Well, it all started with the man who came 93 years ago from the holy city of Mecca, Master Far Muhammad. And he was born, uh, Brother Carl, on the on the 26th of February in the year 1877. So every year we commemorate the birth of Master Far Muhammad, whom the Honorable Elijah Muhammad presented to us from the body of knowledge and wisdom and guidance that he gave him as the Savior. And if we examine and look at the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, they really represent salvation in every aspect. It was Master Far Muhammad who taught the Honorable Elijah Muhammad for three years and four months, and everything that has come from the nation of Islam from Master Far Muhammad is what has produced in the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, such a great leader for us. And from him, we have the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, we, the great students of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali and his son, Warith Uddin Muhammad. So we celebrate uh, this day uh, every year as Savior's Day. All right, six after the top, the and the voice you heard, he's the uh, national assistant to the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. And correct me if I'm wrong, also you're one of uh, Elijah Muhammad's sons? Yes, sir. I, I have the great honor and privilege of being one of his sons. Right, because I met Brother Rasu, worked with a lot of projects in Miami with Brother Rasu when he was down in Miami in that region. And also your mother, uh, Mother Tanada Muhammad, had a chance to interview her too. She came by our studio, and we're in L.A., and it was 4 o'clock in the morning. I told the sister, Sister Charlene and the MGT sisters, that she, she doesn't necessarily have to come to the studio, but she wanted to come in. She says, no, I'm coming in. And I, I think, uh, Brother Ishmael, I think wow. people don't understand that your mother, she, she, was a, she, was almost, she was a journalist. She was a reporter. She author. They didn't, you know, people just think, some people just think that she was just the wife of Elijah Muhammad, which was much more. Can you talk about your mother for a minute? Oh, that's so, so kind and thoughtful of you. I didn't know that you uh, interviewed my mother, but my mother was a great, great woman, to say the least. Everyone's mother and the side of the child is great, and we all love our mothers as we should and honor and respect them. But my mother, as you said, uh, not only was she a wife to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, but a great, great helper in the cause of freedom, justice, and equality. She was a writer. She was a researcher and a great uh, composer. And she traveled all throughout the world and studying different cultures and bringing the knowledge that she found throughout the earth back to our community. So I'm very, very grateful to Almighty God, uh, Brother Carl, for such a wonderful mother. And as we are here in Detroit, this is the city of her birth, uh, Detroit, Michigan. So tremendous woman and thank Allah God for her. 
man. She was very sharp as well, family. I just want to share that with you. Those of you who, who probably didn't hear that interview with uh, Mother Tynetta. And I want to thank Sister Charlene again for hooking us up. Because, you know, we, we, back then we had Dr. Clark, Dr. Ben Van Sertimer, uh Renault Karashini, oh, yeah. Dr. Welch. And, we all, and they all came through the studio. That's the, and it was 4 o'clock in the morning. So we figured that, you know, she, she didn't have to come by. She insisted. She says, I know, I know that these folks, can, Dr. Ben and Dr. Clark could go, I can, I can show up as well. So she demanded that she showed up, and she did. But it, it, it worked out real well. But let me ask you this, though, because we're talking about Savior's Day. And is Savior's Day just for the members of the Nation of Islam, or can the people who, who, uh, who outside people, black people, can anybody attend Savior's Day? Absolutely. It is open to our community, and it is always has been an event and a um, convention that opens its doors to all who are seeking knowledge. So we have a full weekend that starts uh, this morning uh, through uh, Sunday with workshops. There is the annual Mother Khadija, the wife of the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan's Children's Village. We have workshops that deal with health, that deal with agriculture, relationships, marriage, uh, the science of mating, are some of those workshops that will be presented uh, this weekend. And we have a, a large plenary session uh, dealing with um, anti-Semitism and the current lawsuit that the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam have filed against the Anti-Defamation League and the Simon Wiesenthal uh, Center. We also have the annual, Brother Carl, you know, in the Nation of Islam, we drill, we have been taught and trained in our classes, both the FOI and MGT and drill. So every year we have a national competition. And I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest, um, uh, I would call it a show, but it isn't a show because these men and women train so hard, but it is one of the great uh, highlights of Savior's Day is our drill competition. So there is something for everyone and it is open uh, to the community to participate. What about food? You didn't mention food. You know, when our folks get together, we like to have some food now. Oh, <laughs> well, we definitely have our Salam Cafe, and we the, the convention center has been very accommodating and kind to us because of our dietary uh, laws to allow uh, our cooks to cook uh, a meal. And so we, and we have our, absolute worldwide famous bean pie. So the bean pie, of course, is uh, one of the great uh, desserts of the Nation of Islam, and we will definitely have all of the good uh, Muslim cooking that we were taught by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Yeah, folks, you got to check out the food. That's if you, anything else, check out the food. But let me ask you this, Brother Ishmael, because the, the, uh, the, the Savior's Day Convention has been in Detroit before, been in L.A., D.C., Atlanta, uh, even in Ghana at, at, at one time. Why Detroit this year? Any special reason? Well, we have been alternating uh, for several years now between Detroit and Chicago, as Detroit is the uh, home of the Nation of Islam, and it is where Master Fahd Muhammad first appeared uh, in July of 1930 and introduced himself. 
So we call Chicago and Detroit Twin Cities. Um, one of the reasons we have alternated between the two cities, not only because of Detroit's historical significance and meaning not only to the nation of Islam, but it also represented and served as a Mecca of uh, black people. As we know that many of us migrated from the South and uh, found jobs in the automobile industry uh, decades ago. So, uh, but Chicago being a big city, uh, Brother Carl, it, it, it's difficult sometimes. I don't know why people choose as a convention destination February, <laughs> but uh, Chicago, uh, all of the convention centers, even the uh, stadium, is oftentimes very difficult to uh, secure uh, the last weekend of February in Chicago. And that's one of the uh, primary reasons of us alternating between Detroit and Chicago for Savior's Day. Uh, Detroit, we are very grateful to the city uh, council, to the mayor's office, to all the city officials, and to the Huntington uh, Place, formerly known as the Cobo Center. Uh, but they have uh, opened their arms and they have uh, facilitated our convention. Uh, but the primary reason, Brother Carl, is just availability of space in in Chicago to hold our convention, which, of course, as you know, it attracts thousands and thousands of people. So Detroit had the availability for us to hold Savior's Day this year. All right. Hold that thought right there. We've got to take a quick break at 14 after the top. Then we come back. I want to ask you about the lawsuit, Minister Farrakhan's lawsuit. We haven't heard of that. People calling up and asking what's what's going on with the lawsuit. If you can bring us up to date with that. also want to find out about the convention, uh, Savior's Day convention, what you have for our young people. They're always looking out for our future. So we've got to figure out what if we go to if we attend, how can we, you know, should we bring our young people, young youngsters there? Will there be something for them to do? So I'll let you respond to those questions when we get back. Family, you want to join this conversation? Brother Ishmael Mohammed, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, Ishmael Mohammed. He's the National Assistant to the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. They're having a convention uh, this weekend. They call it Savior's Day. And uh, Minister uh, 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 Ishmael, the lawsuit that, yeah. that Minister Farrakhan filed, because people have been calling and asking us about the lawsuit, and I haven't seen anything about it. Where is he now? Is he still uh, in uh, legal limbo? Uh, well, it's in uh, litigation and... Um so, that, you know, going through the legal courts, it's a process. Uh, we hope to have something uh, as early as this weekend to update the public uh, as to where we are and what the um, court's uh, response uh, to our complaint uh, is. Uh, so I would ask everyone to stay tuned and to follow us on NOI.org and through our Final Call newspaper where we would give uh, updates on this uh, legal fight. We know that it is right for us to do because the minister has suffered for 40 years with the uh, abuse uh, and misuse of this uh, term 
uh, anti-Semitic. And so the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan felt rightly so, and we with him that enough was enough, that uh, their labeling, false labeling of the minister as anti-Semitic should be challenged in the legal courts. So um, please stay tuned, and we will update the public uh, through the Final Call newspaper and at our website at NOI.org. And right. people, you can tune in also because our lawyers will present uh, on uh, Saturday, uh, Brother Carl, uh, here in Detroit, in our plenary session that is the uh, about the lawsuit, and it will be streaming live on NOI.org at uh, two o'clock Eastern. Uh, actually, two is it two two thirty Eastern uh, Saturday. Uh, the public, everyone can tune in to hear from the lawyers uh, and get an update on this uh, lawsuit. Can you tell us what the theme of this uh, this year's uh, Savings Day Convention will be? Yes, uh, the minister has chosen the subject. Why does Allah, the great Mahdi, and the great Messiah have to say about the war in the Middle East. That is his subject uh, this Sunday at 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, and that also will be streaming uh, live uh, at NOI.org. Okay, and you know, the, we asked you about the uh, the convention, the uh, Savers Day convention. What about young people? Is there something for our youngsters? Absolutely. Uh, we have uh, two uh, workshops. Uh, that young people will be conduct, uh, conducting. One of them uh, deals with the science of mating. And we know that there are always there, there are challenges in, in any relationships, but the Honorable Elijah Muhammad taught us on the science of mating, how to choose uh, your mate. And we also have a workshop that is presented by young people on abstaining and it's called I Deny and Why God Forbids Premarital Sex. Uh, so there's something for all of the youth to attend. There's another workshop that, that escapes me at the moment that the young people are uh, conducting as well. But the full schedule of events is on NOI.org for this weekend, Savior's Day 2024 right here in the great city of Detroit. So let me let me confirm what you said, though. The minister is going to talk about what's going on in the Middle East, because a lot of people are asking, why haven't I heard Farrakhan talk about what's going on with, with, with Gaza? And they've, they've been waiting for it. So is this the appropriate time that's going to happen? Well, obviously it is. And those who don't know the minister, for those of us who do know the minister, you know, Minister Farrakhan does not... Um, speak ahead of what God gives him to say and gives him to speak. So he has been waiting, and, and as a result of waiting and being patient on his Lord, God has fed him, Brother Carl, on what to say. And that's why his subject, which is so powerful, because everyone has been weighing in, certainly the, the sentiment around the world our hearts bleed and ache for the suffering of our Palestinian family and what uh, Israel is doing over there 
which is just, I mean, it's unspeakable horror that our brothers and sisters are suffering. And uh, Newsweek, I think it was Newsweek article, Brother Carl, um, Newsweek magazine, pardon me, online, they had an article several weeks ago, The Strange Silence of Louis Farrakhan on the Israeli-Hamas war. But Minister Farrakhan is guided by God, and that's why his subject, why does Allah God, the great Mahdi, and the great Messiah have to say about the war in the Middle East? Farrakhan does not speak of himself. He speaks only what God has given to him to say. And what he says and what he has foretold that we are actually facing right now proves that he's connected with God. And all of us that know the minister and have heard the minister, we know that when he speaks, it is a word that enlightens. It is a, war, a word that illuminates. It is a war that a word, pardon me, that puts the events and circumstances of our day in perspective and from the viewpoint of God. So this is perhaps, as he has said, Brother Carl, one of, if not the most important message that he has delivered in his 47-year um, work of rebuilding the nation of Islam, absent his teacher, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and how this conflict in the Middle East, as they are trying to contain it, that is, the United States, from spreading and escalating even further. But Jerusalem is the focus of the scriptures. It is the focus of the war of Armageddon. So there are many, many implications of this conflict in the Middle East, and it has its effect for us here in America and, of course, the people of our planet. So tune in to hear Minister Farrakhan this Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, streaming live at NOI.org. You don't want to miss it. Right. Before I let you go, though, i got to ask you a question about the elections coming up. That's another era. They're looking, people, black people are looking some direction. <laughs> We've got two people that, on the, and, and we don't know what to do. We're sort of, so they're looking, looking for a, 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 a person of the, a, like a Minister Farrakhan. Just, what direction should we go? Do you, is, do you think he's going to discuss that? You know, I can't say for sure, Brother Carl, but I just suspect and imagine that the minister will speak uh, into this uh, national election. I'm sure he'll have something to say about President Trump and uh, President Biden. So I think we will get our direction this Sunday from Minister Farrakhan on the election. What we do know historically is no matter who we vote for, nothing has come of significant gain for us as a people. So they always put before us the choice of two evils. And you remember in the election of President uh, Trump, we it was actually said 
you know, vote for the lesser of two evils. Well, that's like putting in front of me the devil and Beelzebub or Lucifer. I'm, I'm, I'm voting for the devil who's a liar either way. So we uh, have to really, really think carefully of how we cast our vote and uh, the choice that we make, but it just can't be because we want this one over that one if that candidate doesn't bring substance and does not speak to an agenda that we as a people frame to put before the candidates because our vote should not be taken lightly. We have decided the national elections on many of these. So I think black people are in a good position to affect the outcome of the, of the national election. But we've got to see first, what is it that we want from that White House and make them to look at an agenda that satisfies the needs and the aspirations and wants of our suffering people. Yeah, I know you got to run, but the, the tweeters are asking me about reparations. Is that going to be discussed? I can't say that reparations, but I would say it like this. And in the minister's message, reparations will be in that because that is a, a theme of the teachings and the program of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. It is about repairing the, the, the hurt, the pain, the loss of our people in our 400-year bondage and what America and Europe owe black people. All right. So if we need more information, where do we get more information for this event in Detroit on Sunday? NOI.org. NOI.org is the full information and schedule of uh, Savior's Day, and we will be streaming live on NOI.org many of our events for the weekend and, of course, Minister Farrakhan's keynote address on Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern. All right. We'll be checking it out. Please give our regards to Minister Farrakhan and also your brother, Brother Rasu. That's my man. Please, when you do, when you speak to them. Thank you, Brother Ishmael. I'm going to let you go because I know you've been busy out there in Detroit getting this convention started. Well, thank you so much, Brother Carl, for the honor. God bless you and have a wonderful rest of the day and look forward to seeing you and talking with you soon. All right. As uh, Minister uh, Ishmael Muhammad, he's the national assistant to the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. He's also the son of Elijah Muhammad, one of Elijah Muhammad's sons. Brother Rasu, I refer to as the youngest son. They're also brothers, but same mother, same father, uh, Elijah Muhammad. Anyway, we got to take a short break. When we come back, Kevin and I are going to get down about some movies, and we're going to want to get you involved as well. 800-450-7876. We'll take your calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 at AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning, family. 21 minutes away from the top of the hour. Momentarily, we're going to talk about American fiction. If you've seen the movie, give us a call. We'd like to know what you think about it. Our movie critic, Kevin, is going to tell us what he thought hey, about hey. it. 800-450-7876. Number calling. Kevin, we need you as a movie critic now. Yeah. But 
Okay. Before we do that, let me just remind folks, coming up, we're going to speak with the Quasies. We're going to speak with Brother Ashwa Quasi and Merira Quasi. You know, this is Black History Month, so we're going to continue our theme of Black History Month. They're both chemitologists and known for their work on the African origin of civilization. Uh, and tomorrow is Friday, so on Friday we'll give you another chance to free your mind and check in with us early, 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB. And the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. And Kevin, let me ask you, so you're, you're, we're going to anoint you as, as the movie critic now because I, okay. I've seen movie reviews of, of Arjun and also the Bob Marley movie, and, and, and I don't think white folks get it. Let me just put it just blankly <laughs> like that. You know, we just need, we need, we need a, a competent black person movie reviewer. Do, do you know if there's one out there like Siskel and Ebert? Remember those? Did they even had a show? That's right. I remember Siskel and Ebert. Uh, and, uh, of course, then locally on Fox 5, there's that guy that uh, does, I think his name is Kevin, actually. And he does some good movie reviews, but he, too, is a white guy. I don't know of any black movie critics, per se. Uh, there must be, but... Uh, Maybe. Yeah, we just don't know them. Yeah, <laughs> so if yeah. you, family again, if you know them, let us know. Right, they, but, they're in their living room. They're in your kitchen. <laughs> right, but they, but you know, because I, I looked at the reviews on Origin and uh, Bob Marley's One Love, and and, yes. and I see these white reviewers are slamming the movie. I just don't think they get it. But the movie that Jeffrey Wright was, and he was nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Uh, he is. You know, yeah, American Fiction. Oh, you and, mean for the writing or the or the directing? Right. Or the acting. Uh, I think it was for the acting. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. okay. Well, I, I I give the movie a thumbs your thoughts. up. I, I I do. I give you the saw movie it. a thumbs up. I saw it last night, as a matter of fact. And um, if you want to laugh, if you need some laughs, and because that's why I went, I just I was in a mood. I needed some comedy relief, and um, and Jeffrey Wright's movie had, fills the bill for great comedy. Now, if and only if you like that kind of cerebral comedy, I like comedy that makes you think you know and uh it's it takes a poke at the white woke movement you you see so uh it's a fiction by the way hence the title and so that so jeffrey wright's character Thelonious ellison and they called him monk and it took me a minute to catch on why they kept calling him monk but uh it's the Thelonious ellison is his name and uh he was writing these great books, you know, hyper-intelligent books, and they would put his book in African-American studies, even though his book had nothing to do with African-American studies, and they'd go, well, he's an African, you're an African-American, sir, so we put it in African-American studies. And uh, so he decided <laughs> to just take a nom de plume, a pen name, if you will, and uh, create a, a different character who he called Stag R. Lee. Now, if you don't get the joke right there, <laughs> you might yeah. be. But yeah. It, yeah, I'm glad you said that because, yeah, and it was for Best Actor that he, he, he's uh, nominated for. Oh, but great. because it's satire, do you, do you think it, it may go over some people's heads that they don't, they don't get it? Yes. You know, a lot of folks don't really understand a satire, you know, they they take it for they, oh, this is real, you know. This but it, real. It, how can they be it, doing all of this? It's hate, right? It, it's sort of sleep. It makes you think, it you know. It makes you think. think. It does, so, do, do you do you think people got it, or or did uh, how did you did you get it right away, or did you like okay, this is what's going on? Oh yeah, well I I I got it right away. Like I said, that's the kind of humor I like, the stuff that makes people think, and uh, and so I mean, even the fact that he he chose a pen name of Stag R. Lee. That's from that old song. 
stag your leave. Oh, right. See, you don't, you so see, yeah, I, I I get it. But what about if you're not of that generation? Because you remember that, Kevin. Not everybody knows about Stagger Lee, the, the song. Right. So exactly. you know, you got a lot of young people out there, and, and they'll that would definitely go over their heads. Right. And they never and they never clarified it either. They didn't say you know this is from the song or any of that. So you're right. If you if you don't get that reference, it won't take away from the movie though. It it won't. I mean, even though. Uh, as the white publishers in the movie wanted to publish his song, the lady said, Mr. Lee, uh, wh- what can we do? We want to pay you X amount of money. And uh, that, too, was funny because she thought she was talking to Stagger Lee. <laughs> and, uh, see, yeah, so you're right. A, a, a person of a certain generation would get it. And, and because she's calling him Stagger Lee through the whole movie, yeah, it, that's one joke you might miss if uh, – you know, generationally. Right. But meanwhile, you you still catch the fact that it's not his real name. So that in and of itself, it has some humor. And then there's uh, other scenes. And um, and uh, the young lady from uh, from the TV show um, Living Single, Erica. I believe her name is Erica. Uh, Erica Alexander. Uh, yeah, Erica Alexander was in, the, in it. It was good to see her back into the acting realm. And uh, so... Uh, I, I give the like I said I give the movie thumbs up and uh, I, I really really enjoyed it. I don't want to do any spoilers because <laughs> one it's funny and then they have a surprise ending on it and uh, you know so it's a, a, a lot to it. It was it, it was really good and all of the <laughs> actors uh, Leslie Uggams was in it. It was good to see her again. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. All right, let me do this. Family, if you've seen the movie and if you agree with Kevin's uh, report or review, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. And we mentioned that Jeffrey Wright has received an Oscar nomination for this. And if you look at the, the Oscar winners, like what they had to do, Denzel's portrayal, uh, Halle Berry, what she had to do, uh, Monique, the roles that they played were, were you know, they were... Uh, America says, hey, you, you're the best at that. You know, so people say that all of those roles wasn't a stretch. They were a sort of stereotypical of, uh, of the roles they played. But this is really deep because Jeffrey Wright is going, is, as you mentioned, Kevin, it, it's satirical. So yeah. it, it makes you think. So, And he's already won a Tony. So he's not one of these uh, these uh, actors that go take one, take two. He's, he knows how to work his, his way on the stage where, he's you know, you've got to get it right on the first take. So he he's got he's got the chops to do it, but I'm just wondering, will Hollywood see that? You want to get your thoughts on that because the other folks, the black folks that have won, usually in in roles that are sort of stereotypical. Your thoughts on that? Do you think they'll understand it? Do I think that the Academy will understand it? Yeah, the the voting Academy, not not just the you know people who who vote. 
Um, I'm not sure. I'm not knowing. I'm not knowing exactly how the academy works. I'm, they might see it as they're the <laughs> they're the brunt of the joke. That's what I mean. They yeah, might see like like, like he, he's he's a smart and you know what and and he's trying to get over on us. And when they figure it out, oh, he, he he's one of these smart ends. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because he's he's not playing in the as I mentioned the winners. I just mentioned three of the Oscar winners. You know, Denzel. You know what movie he won? Uh, yeah. uh, Highly Barry, what she did. Also, uh, Monique, what the role that they played. All those plays, uh, those roles are sort of stereotypical, if you will, of black what black folks did. And what what uh, Jeffrey White's different though. It it makes you think. It, it's satirical. So I want to get to your thoughts if, if you've seen the movie. What and and your thoughts about his chances of winning the Oscar? Because you know, a lot of times we seek in, um, and this is a, going down Dr. Fox's lane. We we seek in hey, appreciation me, from from uh, white folks. But go ahead, Kevin. Well, well, let me ask you this: Is it necessary to win an Oscar? Because I, I'm not sure this movie is that kind of movie this movie is art man to me it's it's art it doesn't i mean yeah well, that's what i'm saying uh, oscar might be cool yeah, yeah it's good the oscars are for the actors right not for the not for the content is, is that how that works i mean because the content of this is so it seems to me so so ahead of of time it seems to be that uh it's it stands alone in the creation of this uh, artistic stuff it goes with that the French movies, you know, whether they show those movies uh, in Europe, it, it goes with those, the movies that you almost never get to see because they, they're so artistic. This one, Yeah, but the acting, so the acting, the roles of the actors are really great in those movies, though. They, they, which Those movies that you're talking about is a whole different from the Hollywood right. kind of movies that we see. Yeah, yeah, like Bollywood and all of that. And, yeah. um, and, and like I said, Leslie Uggams played a great role. Um, the, uh, everybody, the, the guy that played his brother, man, the, the movie is just, and, and while at the same time, it's it's seamed with with comedy throughout the whole. Throughout it's the comedy because you you understood the satire. That's yes, what I'm saying. Yes, I'm not yes. sure, it, you know, just the, the Stagger Lee bit, you know, how many people know about Stagger Lee again? Uh, oh, yeah, it, right, right. But look, he wanted to call him, here's, here's one spoiler, folks. He wanted to call the book My Pathology. But in order to get it past the woke white publishers, he changed it to pathology, P A F F O. <laughs> that in and of itself was right. hilarious. That, that's where that's why I ask you if, if people see him as a, one of these smart ends trying to get over us, you know, the MAGA crowd be upset. Well, we got that, Bob from Buffalo. Let's ask. All right, let's what find out what Bob thinks. And Bob's on line one. Good morning, Bob. Hey, Bob. Yeah. Good. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, there there, there are three great movies out right now, and I had a chance to see two of them. I saw the Bob Marley One Love movie, and uh, my lady friend and I got the chance to see uh, this American fiction. And my son uh, also saw it. So my son's comment was the, the soundtrack was great. Oh, yeah, that's right. Was yes, great, great and, music. Uh, and, I thought, and I thought that the, uh, the, the themes that they tapped on uh, in terms of uh, sudden death uh, unexpected sudden death, oh, yeah, uh, right. Alzheimer's or dementia, and how we deal with that, and how we deal in relationship with one another intimately, and family relations, you know, brother, sister, uh, family relations, and how we can be estranged from each other. But uh, I, the, the fact that he had written such a scholarly text and it had been received but not sold well. Right. But that the uh, the stereotypical novels, the almost step and fetch it type of uh, imagery, um, 
the ghetto ghettoization imagery was <laughs> yeah, was selling. Uh, I thought it was really uh, well well done. The acting was well done. But what about and, Tracy uh, Tracy Ellis Ross? You're right, man. The, when the, her character established likability right away. Yes, sir. Yeah, the the whole the movie. I was I was I had wanted to see Origins, but it wasn't playing in the theaters that it was available for me. And my partner uh, chose that because uh, he was one of the star was one of her favorite actors. Uh-huh. But uh, the, the the relationships, the family relationships, uh, how we can love people but still be slightly distant from them. Um, they, they touched on a lot of things and. Uh, the fact that my son found it uh, and my lady found it both very well worth the time. Yes. I think people need to see it. And it's not so much about whether they win the awards. And my mind goes to uh, Marvin Gaye's music, uh, what's going on, how it never received the awards it, that it should have during its its time. Right. But its greatness lives on. And I think this is the same kind of film that uh, its greatness will live on whether it receives awards or not people need to invest the time to see because this life that we live here in america is in some form american fiction amen yes, brother is. amen Bob. all right thanks bob Bob. before i let you go though your son i don't know how old your son is but did he catch on to the some of the, the satire that was played in, and kevin mentioned the staggerly part did he uh, did he know that my son just turned in in his fifties. Uh, I'm in my seventies. Um, oh, well, he caught uh, it. He, he 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 caught it, and uh, it, it impressed me that he was impressed with the music. That the music uh, musical themes throughout it really impressed him, and I thought that impressed me. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Bob. I tell you what, Jerry wants to check in, but we got to take a short break. Jerry, we'll talk to you after this short break here. It's six minutes away from the top of our family. We're back in four minutes, and then also we're going to talk to the Quasies, Ashra Mayra Quasi, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. And good morning, family. And thanks for rolling with us this morning. It's a minute after the top of the hour. Momentarily, we're going to speak with the Quasies, Asha Amira Quasi. But let's wrap up with this discussion about the movie American Fiction. And Kevin, if you're still there, I just wanted to tell ask about yeah, three I mean, or four tweets that people said they don't know what Stagger Lee was. They didn't know. <laughs> for those of you know, that was a song. It was a big hit yeah. by Lloyd Price. Right. It was kind of a country song, though, Stag-a-lee. wasn't it? No, man. It was a soul song. I mean, the, the, the theme, the you know, two men fighting, playing dice and fighting and that kind of stuff. Uh, well, I, I would categorize it more as blues. But, blues, uh, yeah, that's correct, yeah, blues. But, uh, but that's funny what Jerry thinks about it. Jerry's online, too. Jerry, what city are you in? Well, right now I'm in Montgomery County, but I'm originally from Baltimore. When I Sometimes going to the movies is supposed to be a time to relax. Yeah. But there were so many hidden messages in this movie. And as I was watching it, once with a group of friends who – uh, basically, they attended community college and state schools, and then another group who went to the Ivy League. And neither one of them, neither group, really understood a lot of the nuances in the movie. For example, you mentioned Monk. They were right. not just talking about the Alonius Monk. The last name for him was Ellison. Right. Ralph Ellison 
an invisible man was often referred to as, as monk. monk. Wow, I there missed were, that one. I missed that one too, were, Jerry. There wow. were a lot of hidden things there. For example, uh, it, they often mentioned the Hamptons. Yeah. But they were making fun of the Hamptons because they were <laughs> going right. to a place very similar <laughs> and true. doing similar type things. They sure I were. Think, that was so funny when the publisher, it, the publisher said, uh, oh, yes, uh, I'm going to the Hamptons. <laughs> Yeah, okay. but I, I think a lot of times we're there to enjoy, but we have to realize that if we have the information, we have to educate others also. When I told my friends was, why don't you go back and, and watch Blazing Saddles Yes, <laughs> and Shaft that came out at the same time? Those two things that they're referencing there, Blazing Saddles was way ahead of its time. It sure was, yes. But so was Shaft. Yep. So you had the same two types of characters in there. There's a book that came out quite a few years ago called Cool Pose. And he seemed to be living the life, the ones that the uh, publishers wanted him to do, of the character from Cool Pose. But this morning I was watching the news, the Washington Teachers Union, uh-huh. and we the movies and the books are there not just to – Uh, make us happy, they're there to inform us. I was watching how the, I'm a teacher. Okay. But I was watching how the teachers were walking and adopting this cool pose on the streets of D.C. And it it was hilarious to me (laughs) that we fall into these roles because others expect us to be there. And I, I, let me jump in because we got the we got the equations on deck. But let me ask you this question real quick though: Do you think because you mentioned it has so many nuances, it was satire that that Hollywood will accept it? Do you think he can win an Oscar for for his performance? I, I think it would not win an Oscar because so many people are not going to take the time to look up the references. Uh, in in modern white American society, they would go back and they would be. Uh, a lot of research done, but I well, even a, when you were doing yours, initially, uh, think about it. You didn't go back and explain Monk. You didn't go back and explain Sagar Lee until the second portion of it. And so many people are not going to go back and listen to that music. And also, they don't know the history of what was going on in the era around Sagar Lee. And Jerry, uh, Jerry, let me ask you this. Outside of Again, spoiler alert, folks, outside of the reference to the LGP, you know, that community, right? LGBT community. Um, QT plus. Yeah, you think, (laughs) do you think that that will also keep it out of the Oscars consideration? Absolutely not. Uh, That was funny, though, man. (laughs) When when you you think about what's going on with our movies now, I'm I'm not even going to say the name of the movie. Just go look it up. What movie did we just have about a famous African-American in the civil rights period who was part of that community? And especially if you're coming out of Baltimore, and I often hear on this particular program comments about the Black Panther Party. Wow. Baltimore's gay community during the Panther Party era was incredible, incredible, incredibly smart. I grew up in Baltimore. I'm not right, Jerry. but I did grow up in Baltimore. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. And, of course, the movie's talking about is Rushton. Family, we got to move on. Thank <laughs> because, you, Jerry. Uh, thank you, Jerry. Uh, five after the top of the hour, we're going to say Hotep, 
to Brother Ashra Kwesi. Brother Kwesi, good morning, sir. Uh, good morning, Brother Carl. I'm going to be on your show again. Uh, I always say, rise like Ra to live again. I think Ra is coming up now. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's been a minute. Is, is, is your sister May Ra with us? Uh, unfortunately, she's not going to be with us this morning. She's helping her mother at this time. Uh, you know, we have our elders. We, uh, we have to take care of them. And uh, unfortunately, you know, she had to uh, go over there to her mother's house last night to uh, help her out. And... Um, you know, fortunately, she has a great longevity in her family. So, uh, unfortunately, she would not be able to be on the show this morning. Mm-hmm. All right. I just saw the note here that Kevin sent me. All right. Because uh, her mom is 92. That's a blessing, man. You know, for, for black folks, we live this long. That's, we all should live that long. So, yeah, you Baba, know. Baba, Baba, yeah, my father-in-law, her father, yeah, he just turned 101. Wow. Yeah. So, Amazing. You know, yeah. So, you know, we, uh, so I you, think we eat, either we're eating the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. <laughs> but, you know, we got got to get the wisdom of, of their long right they must be doing something right to because you know you're supposed to live that long that's what they tell us but uh you know so many of our people uh brother quest you look around they're dropping out left and right and, and they're well, pretty you young know, as you well. look, look at the commercials and look what they're showing on the commercials of uh, what we're eating you know you got all these burgers and all this other stuff mess on there that you know i mean the multinational corporations you know i mean it's about the money you know feed your taste buds but kill your body yeah <laughs> Wow, uh, and and your grand is your grandson granddaughter with us? Uh, yes, my granddaughter uh, Jalen Terry. I uh, yeah, she's uh, I mean she's great, brother Carl. She uh, definitely inspired us. Uh, we took her to Kemet uh, this past summer uh, along with my grandson, my granddaughter, and my grandson. And um, she's uh, she's going to graduate from uh, high school uh, this year, and uh, she's going to be enrolling into Hampton. And she's been a straight A student, brother Carl, from kindergarten. Wow. A straight Jaylen. A student. And Let's bring her on then. Jalen's yes, on I five, know. Kevin. Good morning, Jalen. National Honor Society. She's on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she really, she really, uh, I mean, she did a paper. We had nothing to do with this paper. And uh, she traveled to Kemet, as I said. And uh, she did an essay for uh, to be admitted into the uh, HBCU, Hampton. And she got eight HBCUs, I think, who called wow. her, okay, because of this essay that she did, and she related it to her travels in Kemet. And, Wait, before you uh, go any further, though, did they know that, that she was related to you? No, they did not know she was related to okay. me. Okay. Right. Because you, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you know, get extra points. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm related to Ashra no, Crazy. No, no, All these the HBCUs will want to sign her up. No, she got the extra points because of her, her essay. Uh, they blew us away. I mean, I said, you know, I said, wow. I mean, we couldn't. I mean, we. She wrote that essay, and it was just uh, absolutely mind blowing. And uh, in fact, it was so powerful. That's when I spoke to you, and I said, hey, it'd be great for her to read her essay that she was, okay. uh, was admitted uh, into. Uh, well, H, uh, eight, eight, excuse me, eight HBCUs called her, okay, or admitted her. So she chose uh, Hampton University. She'll be going into. Mm-hmm. All right, Jalen, can you share that with us? Yes, um, I can read my essay. Go ahead. Okay. So, for most people, it is instinct to live only according to what you've been taught and not the truth you've chosen for yourself. I had the privilege of traveling to Egypt for two weeks during the months of July and August of 2023. After that experience, I was unexpectedly left questioning the world as I knew it. For as long as I can remember... My grandparents, Ashra and Mary Rock Quasi, have dedicated their lives to studying Kemet 
and taking Black people from all over the world on this educational journey, too. My journey began on July 24, 2023. I arrived in Cairo and was immediately immersed in the beauty and greatness of the Giza pyramids of Khufu, Kufra, and Menkla. Throughout the weeks, I was able to visit many temples, pyramids, and structures in Luxor, Aswan, and the Abu Simbel temples of Ramesses II and Queen Nefertari. I was encapsulated by the most notable statue of Ra Haru Amakit, which is the Sphinx, the Valley of the Kings, and my cruise down the Nile River. I experienced amazement like the ancient Greeks who recognized that Egyptians built these structures thousands of years before their civilization. Only a few days into my trip, I experienced an overwhelming feeling of pride and arrogance in who I am and where I have come from. In this two-week journey, I had an epiphany of my then-current way of viewing life. I witnessed the origin of concepts, theories, and sciences now utilized by and credited to the Western world. Yet these innovations occurred on the African continent, something rarely mentioned in history books. The ancient Egyptians also had an advanced understanding of spirituality. There was always the presence of a higher deity that existed beyond human comprehension. For example, the earliest concept of a trinity, that of Asar, Aset, and Haru, developed in Egypt. Similar to this concept in present-day Christianity, there is Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, the trinity that came thousands of years preceding the Egyptian civilization. These accounts existed long before the Western world, and the ancient Egyptians historically documented these stories by carving them in stone. Like this one, I was amazed by the many concepts that align with commonly told westernized stories. Black people for hundreds of years have been captivated and controlled by a Western way of thinking that although physical slavery ended, mental slavery still persists. I began questioning the world around me. Traveling to Africa revealed that people believe either the truth they have been taught or the truth they seek for themselves. I realized that slavery began with the suppressing of our ancestral knowledge, not the plantation. Our greatness was so empowering that the Western world hid ancient Egyptian innovations and ideas and attributed them to non-Africans. My newfound knowledge will make me a better student who thoroughly researches and investigates concepts before accepting them at face value. I was prompted to do more profound research and be liberated from believing only what I've been told. My stay in Egypt allowed me, at 17 years old, to learn the art of having a free mind, a mind that does not stay obliged to westernized views, but one that can think for itself. I began to contemplate just how many people walk through life living the truth that others have taught them rather than their own. My intention from this growth period in my early life is to remind others, now that I've found out for myself, that a free mind is the key to living a life of self-understanding and actualization, and it all begins by returning to the origin of my existence, Africa. Being immersed in an environment with this, with like-minded Black people will allow, allow me to cultivate a culture for my peers think and have a freed mind for themselves. All right, and that's it. Twelve after the top, Jalen. Yes, no right. Well, well deserved applause there. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Jalen, let me ask you this: Why did you select Hampton? What was it about Hampton? Um, so I went 
to go visit. I actually didn't really know about Hampton until my father had brought it up to me about two years ago. And he was like, I think this will be a good choice for you. It's, it's an environment that you like. They have a good um, business program, which is what I'm looking to go into, to where I'm able to uh, hopefully receive my master's in five years, like staying on track with this program. So that was a big reason. And then two, knowing the history of the school is being one of the first HBCUs after the Civil War and just having that still existing today and just being in an environment with like-minded people who have the same goals and want to be something in life, it, it makes the decision pretty easy. All right, hold that thought right there, Jalen. We gotta take a short break. When we come back, though, I want you to tell us you when you went to that trip to Egypt, what stood out to you the most? What sort of blew your mind? And I know it did because I have an I have a nephew who went with Brother Quasi. He didn't tell me he was going. He told me when he got back. And he's been okay. floating on the air ever since. And now I think that was about two years ago. Every time I talk to him, that's all he talks about, his trip to Egypt with Brother Quasi. But you went, so I want to find out what you've what what you startled you, what you know sort of blew your mind when you went there, what you learned. If you can share that with us we'd appreciate it when we get back we've got to take a short break it's 14 after top day i'll be back in four minutes family you want to join this conversation brother ashra kwesi reach out to us at 800-450-7876 we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in baltimore on 1010 w-o-l-b and also in the dmv we're on fm 95.9 and am 1450 w-o-l where information is power and good morning, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour with the master teacher, Brother Ashra Kwesi. She's got his granddaughter with him, Jalen, who's going to Hampton. She got accepted to eight HBCUs. She wrote a letter uh, disca- describing her trip uh, to Kemet with her grandfather. So, Jalen, tell me again now, what was it that you learned on that trip? What was it that actually blew your mind that you didn't know before? Um, I think... It, it's a lot. It's a lot of things. Like it's a, it's truly a two week journey that you'll remember forever. I think for me, the main thing that kind of clicked in my head was like I was saying, a lot of the things we're taught our whole lives to be that have existed already that from America is like they look to tell us. It's been there in Egypt for for centuries. So I think actually just visiting the temples and seeing the metumeter, which is the writing on um, writing in the stone, and seeing how they had early early concepts of these things, and then the Western art world just took a hold of it and and claimed it as their own. It was just I feel like it makes you click in yourself that you come from these people that are so intelligent and creative in all these things. So it gives you a sense of pride. And so I think just having that and just having a sense of self knowing you come from this greatness and along with knowing that you, you were the originators of these, these concepts that are commonly told, and in the Western world, it just makes you feel proud. Was there any one single thing that you you just absolutely just like, wow, astounding? I did not not know that. Didn't expect that. I think the the main thing was talking about the Trinity of a star, a set, and Haru, and and all those things along with like the zodiac and things like that. Because I mean. 
Christianity is the most popular, most well-renowned religion in America. So knowing that there are stories that are so similar and just just wild coincidences that just can't be wrong. That was what blew my mind the most. And then, again, I think another thing was finding power in the sun. Like uh, Bob was saying this morning, rise, rise like rise again. So you need the sun for everything. If there was no sun, there would be no us. So, and then I think that was a big thing too, just knowing that and just and finding power in nature, really, just everything around us. I think that was a big thing for me. Would, would you would you consider telling your friends or asking your friends to take that trip to Egypt as well? This is funny. I've actually tried to have this conversation with my friends because uh, we talk about things like religion and things like that, and I just kind of brought it up one day. I was like, you know, what if there was something else that came before Christianity? I, I don't know how I feel about this anymore. And, you know, saying that to people, it's, it doesn't go over lightly all the time. So I've tried to have that conversation. I think I would, but in a later time where people are more open-minded and more accepting of things. That's the thing. When you go on a ship, you have to be open-minded and just be willing to accept everything around you. If not, if you're just going to be stuck in whatever ways, then it's just, it's, you're not going to really get the full experience that you could. So just taking people with an open mind, I feel like, is the thing that you need if you want to take somebody on this trip. You're absolutely right. Cognitive dissonance, that's what they call it. You know, even though they see evidence of what it's real, they still won't let go of their old beliefs. And it's it's really hard for those who are, uh, you know, steep in religion. That's why I was asking their questions. Your your peer group, your friends. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. that, that's so, a big thing. So now armed with this knowledge now, Jalen, what are you going to do with it? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. I'm excited. I feel like it could not have came at a better time because there was the thought of, oh, should I take the trip? after I graduate high school, but I'm so glad that I took it before because even this year, I feel like it's prepared me to be a self-sufficient person when I'm leaving my hometown and going hours away, states away by myself. I feel like it really just prepared me to have a sense of pride and arrogance and be able to speak up for myself and knowing what I know. And I feel like it's just going to prepare me for real life, prepare me to be out by myself when I, in my collegiate years 
So I'm just excited that I was able to have this experience and really reflect on it, have a year or so to reflect on it before I leave off to school. So I think this knowledge just, it'll really help with being by myself and just using it amongst my peers even to have some some more in-depth, interesting conversations, just just to have people think. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to go back? Go back home? No, back back to Canada. You, you're going to take oh. another trip? Yes. I really want to. <laughs> At least one more time within the next five years or so. Yeah, because what you're going to find out when you go back to it, there's certain things that you missed on the first trip that you're going to pick up on the second trip, and when you now be more able to understand and digest what what you what Brother Quasi has been teaching, and, and you'll see it in a different light as well. Yes, I think the first trip was really just seeing everything and just being so amazed at everything. But the next time that I go back, will just be more actually understanding and trying to dig more deep into those things. All right. Thanks, Jalen. And thank you for sharing your experiences with us this morning. All right, family. It's uh, 28. Many thanks to my granddaughter. Yes, sir. (laughs) Brother Quincy. She was also on the National Honor Roll, too, Brother Carl. Oh, uh, there you go. National Honor Roll, yeah. Uh Yeah. Uh, uh, Brother Quincy, Ron has joined us from Detroit. He's on line one. Yes, Brother Ron. yeah, brother, brother Ron actually takes uh, brothers and sisters uh, back to Africa, and he has uh, some brothers and sisters who uh, sisters who are coming. He's going to bring on our tour this summer. And uh, Brother Ron, I met him uh, back in uh, 19. Well, I didn't meet him back in 1988, but he was at the lecture at Morehouse in 1988, and I lectured up in Detroit last year. And he came up to me and he said, "Brother Quasi." Uh, I was at Morehouse when you and Dr. Ben came, and you changed my life on that. So at this point, I let Brother Ron come in. <laughs> All right. Good morning, Brother Ron. Ron, and tell us, how are you, Brother Quasi, Dr. Ben? How did it change your life? What was life changing about that? Well, greetings. Can you hear me okay? Sure. Okay, awesome. Okay, no, peace, I just want to – peace, Brother Quasi. Uh, I just want to first give thanks to uh, your granddaughter. That was a beautiful uh, essay that I listened to, and uh, she will have a wonderful experience at Hampton. My daughter just graduated from Hampton uh, last May, and uh, she was the first person in the school's history to finish their chemical engineering program in in three years, Uh, and she's now in a Ph.D. program. So uh, Hampton is a beautiful campus, and uh, she will have a wonderful uh, experience. so I wanted to give thanks to uh, your granddaughter, Brother Quasi. The uh, that night in 1988, I was fre- I'm from Detroit and uh, was down there. Uh, my degree from Morehouse was in physics. So if you can imagine all of this knowledge, because uh, Quasi kind of was always the uh, the opening act for Dr. Ben with the slideshow presentation and going through all of that history. Uh, that uh, his granddaughter was just speaking about, it just opened my eyes because I didn't, even growing up in Detroit, public schools, I I didn't get that knowledge. I didn't get that information. And so to hear that, and then uh, Dr. Ben right after that, and and Brother Khalid Muhammad was on the stage as well. Uh, It was a night of uh, unspeakable greatness. Uh, 
And um, and so you can't help but get that knowledge and go back to the classroom with a certain bit of pride. And because I was at Morehouse, I was uh, taught by some of the best scholars in, you know, dealing with the black perspective on many things. And so you talk about Imhotep, and I'm here studying physics. I had to take classes in the fourth dimension, mathematical physics and quantum mechanics and special relativity. You just take those types of classes like you know, it's not hard. I am physics. I invented physics. I invented all of this stuff. So, of course, I can get it. And so it just gives you a, such a sense of empowerment. And when you're around nothing but black excellence, it just it just forces you to level your game up. And so putting it into this perspective uh, was just great. And I just cherished that night. And it was a great full circle moment for me to come up to Brother Kwesi, uh here in Detroit. And and just say, brother, I was there, and this is the impact that it had. Well, let me ask you this, Ron. What made you? You're a physics major, and you, Doctor Bannon, Brother Quasey, speaking. What made you want to go hear them? Um. Well, at Morehouse, uh, we are required to take a year of history of African civilizations. And our textbook for the class was is, was John Jackson's book, Introduction to African Civilizations. So right off the back, you're, you know, you just sort of get in, enthralled in the knowledge. And then you have these speakers that come uh, and they just share a lot of information. And let me let me tell you just a little another full circle moment, because you were last hour you were on with uh, Brother Ishmael. His mother gave a lecture at Spelman that blew my mind, just like Quasi and Dr. Ben's presentation. Okay, and so and and Mother Tynetta gets into the whole cosmology, and and I was in the fourth dimensional physics class at the time, so it put it all in perspective. When you go faster than the speed of light, which is what our melanin allows us to do on that mental plane. But anyway, all of those types of things just really resonated with me and empowered me to, you know, be the best that I could be and and to put it all into that perspective. So, you know, I'm just extremely and eternally grateful for the trajectory that it has taken my life in terms of once I graduated with my degree, I ended up going to grad school and getting an engineering master's degree, but came back to Detroit and uh, started working with uh, an African rites of passage program, which takes kids to Africa. So that was just sort of, you know, you kind of have to have this knowledge, but you have to apply it for some sort of purpose in your life and some sort of mission to, you know, advance the community. And that's what I love about HBCUs. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for sharing that with us. And uh, we got to take, yeah, take a break. So uh, thank you for sharing with us, Ron. we got to take a break. It's 26 minutes away from the top of the hour family. We'll be back in four minutes with Brother Ashwa Kwesi. Reach out to us if you want at 800-450-7876. We'll be back right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.
And good morning, family. 22 minutes away from the top of the hour, Brother Ashra Kwesi. Brother Kwesi, you know, he studies African origin of civilization. That's a lot of themes that he comes and he takes trips to Kemet. And he mentioned his granddaughter was there and she showed, shared us what she thought about the trip. Ron called from Detroit and he heard Brother Kwesi when he was at Morehouse with Dr. Ben and he mentioned what that did to his life too. But uh, let me ask you this, Brother Kwesi, because you, your theme is know thyself. Do you think that's the problem with many of our people? We don't know who we are. Well, uh, definitely, Brother Carl. And before I go on, I want to give uh, many thanks uh, to my granddaughter and also uh, Brother Ron Spears uh, for uh, being on the radio show uh, this morning, and especially my, my granddaughter who uh, traveled with us. And, I mean, that powerful essay that she did uh, where she spoke of and uh, also eight HBCUs. So, uh, I'm not trying to get what well, she chose, uh, Hampton, but uh, they all tried to get her to come to their school after reading that essay. So that shows the power of knowledge, uh, Brother Carl. And um, Mary Ra and I, uh, my wife and I, Mary Ra, we uh, have our Kemet New Know Thyself tour. We, we call it Know Thyself, going back to the tradition of our ancestors in ancient Kemet. And um, over the temple, you see what is known as the Burdet, or the sun wing, uh, symbolizing you know good over evil and also knowing ourselves. And Kemet New literally means black people know thyself. And uh, ancient Kemet talked about a nahest, okay, uh, meaning uh, a great awakening, okay, and that great awakening of knowing ourselves, uh, as Dr. Richard King also talked about, an African ancestral genetic memory bank. Uh, we're not talking about just looking at our history within a circumference of 2,000 years or just looking at our history from uh, Western civilization. As my granddaughter mentioned, you we're talking about thousands of years of history and it's validated right there at the fallopian tube of the Nile Valley. I'm speaking about the fallopian tube because it's there. That's where it all began. The gestation of civilization did not start in Asia. It did not start in Europe. It started in Africa. And that fallopian tube of the Nile Valley, where our ancestors carried that knowledge. And as I'm sitting right here at my desk, I can't help to notice that a picture that Jalen actually painted for me, and she was eight years old, and what it is is um, a golden ratios. And what's interesting about this particular picture is just coming to mind as I'm staring right at it. I uh, was in Uganda during that time, and I was in a place called Ogongo. And in Ogongo, in the museum, they talked about how the discovery of the golden ratio was there, and they carried that down the Nile. Now, of course, in uh, European classrooms and to our children, and same thing we got, the Europeans discovered this and discovered that. Well, they say that the golden ratio was started by a European by the name of Fibonacci. And the golden ratio is, uh, is in everything. It's in nature itself. It's in uh, from the, our fingerprints uh, from the time of the fetus in our mother's womb, uh, whether we're looking at plants, whether we're looking at the nebula of the universe. Everything is in a circle in a golden ratio. And our ancestors observed that. So it's very interesting that uh, when I got back, Jalen makes this golden ratio and a painting, and I explained to her that uh, that was started by our ancestors thousands of years ago. So just little things like that, even though it's little, it's still some big information, especially when the credit is given to a European. So what happens in the classroom when uh, our children are constantly taught to deify these Europeans? And the history, as Brother Ron equally pointed out, uh, some of the things that uh, he spoke of. And so it's unfortunately through this deification that we lose ourselves. So when we say know thyself, we're talking about an ancestral self. We're talking about who we are as an African people. 
Uh, we're talking about that, that great beginning of thousands of years ago. Uh, we did great history here in America, but it didn't start in America. Uh, John Hope Franken's book, uh, he wrote his book and he titled it From Slavery to Freedom. How, how could he put a title from slavery to freedom? We were not slaves taken from the African continent. We were kidnapped from the African continent and brought over here and forced into slavery. So that was the incorrect title. And I say that because when we uh, were taken and kidnapped from the African continent, the number one thing they did was to take away our history. Because how do you make a slave? You have to make a people think that they have no history at all. And then you can make a slave. And from that point out, we were taught in the deification of Western civilization, Brother Carl. And everything that we do, their names are in it. As I've said on many occasions, you know, we, uh, we're taught about Pythagoras and Pythagorean theorem and all these things. Um, but how can we speak of his name when we look at Imhotep? thousands of years before him or Kajimi or Patahotep. And some people hear these names and, you know, not familiar, but they're familiar with uh, Kepler, Copernicus, and Newton, Galileo. All these are are names that we are taught in Western academia. So this is the importance of uh, knowing our history and the importance that not to get trapped within the circumference of only 2,000-year time period. As uh, uh, speaking of uh, Dr. Wilmot Blyden, he said that mental slavery was worse than physical slavery. Okay, so because when you have slavery of the mind, we can have slavery going on right now today, and that slavery is neo-slavery. It's a new form of slavery. Because if a people still don't know who they are, then, of course, we can still find ourselves in a form of mental and spiritual and psychological slavery. As Jalen pointed out, the whole idea of the spiritual idea that our ancestors saw in our own black divinity that's part of that awakening. That's part of that spirituality, that nihest, and looking at our own black divinity. So if you can't see your own black divinity, this can create what is known as spiritual enslavement, okay, spiritual enslavement where you can't even see your own divinity in your own images, looked at your oppressor's images and so forth. And this is what we see in many of some of the institutions that we see around the country, only the deification of Europeans. And this is why it's so important for us to bring our children, uh, expose them to the world, because another part of slavery is the fear. We were afraid to leave that plantation, some of us. Yes, some of us ran away. In fact, as I mentioned on many occasions, it's still in the books. It's called uh, drapetomania. Okay, they said it was a disease for Africans to run away, and they called it drapetomania, runaway slaves, or those who had diastesis Ethiopica, the defiant slave. But there are those who did not want to run away. They had a fear of running off the plantation. Well, I say that, Brother Carl, because, like I said, neo-slavery has that same effect, that we're afraid to leave America, the new plantation. Okay, America becomes the plantation. When we look at other places, we look at other places where Europeans are, we think we are safe. So we want to go to France. We want to go to Paris. I've been to Paris, okay, I've been to Europe, I've been to these places, I've been to England, I've been to these places, I've gone there to lecture, I've traveled there, many cases going there to see what they stole from Africa, all right, so not get caught in the deification of these places, but understanding that who we are, not going there deifying the Europeans. In many cases, this is how many Africans go to uh, European Western world, but when they speak of going to Africa, uh, uh, many cases we find where one would say, well, why are you going there? It's always a question or it's always a fear 
of going somewhere where we are. When I travel in my first travels in Africa back in 1981 with Dr. Ben, the number one thing that amazed me, Brother Carl, was seeing all these Europeans with their children traveling in Africa. When I traveled in Kenya, whether I traveled in, uh, in of course, in Kemet for, for many, many years, or many places where I've traveled on the African continent, I always see Europeans with their children. And what their children are exposed to is the fact, in many cases, we are serving them. And this is how they're exposed to the world, that we are serving them no matter where they travel. So Europeans do not like to see us on the African continent because it messes up their whole paradigm. All right. That, uh, you know, when we come there, then, of course, they see brothers and sisters, they run to us and, and, and in fact, and love to see us there because most of the time they only see Europeans coming there. And uh, but when they see us coming there, they enjoy seeing us there on the African continent and coming, as they say, welcome back home. So it's important for us to get out of this neo-slavery and stop having a fear in many cases of traveling. And uh, Mary Ra and I doing the educational tours, as I said, the Kemet New Know Thyself tours, we uh, titled it. And many brothers and sisters who, who call, some of them have traveled extensively, and, but there's some who have not traveled at all outside of America. And we have to, in some cases, take them by the hand and let them know, you know, everything's going to be okay. In fact, there's one case where um, we had to talk to a brother and sister a few years ago about traveling to Africa, and they were constantly calling, afraid. It was just, I knew what was happening, okay, because here's this, this, this fear of uh, going outside of this neo-plantation, okay, of America. And, um, but anyway, they, they, they made it to New York, but the brother's wife had a panic attack. She was because, mainly because her family told her, you shouldn't go there, you know, to Africa and this and that. But anyway, she had a panic attack. Uh, right before the plane took off, and the brother came and said, my wife's having a panic attack, and uh, they said, I, I might have to take her to the hospital. I said, well, brother, that's your wife. you got to take her to the hospital. And I said, hopefully you can get back before the plane takes off. Well, he took her to the hospital, and fortunately they got back in time before the plane took off, and everybody started clapping when they saw them. All right, so, but to make a long story short, uh, they, they came on the tour, had a great, wonderful time. But what really blew me away they sent us a postcard the next year. They went on a world tour when they realized, okay, how open the world really is. And that just blew us away and that they actually gave sent us a postcard that they, hey, uh, to get over that fear of leaving, as I refer to, this neo-plantation of America. But it's the culture that we were locked in, Brother Carl. It's the culture back that we carry to this very day in, in many cases. All right, and that's why uh, we have uh, such a fear of uh, the outside outside of America. Uh, like I said before, only going to European places. So this is why uh, you know traveling back to Africa and uh, being able to be exposing our children to the world, how it opens up their mind, and uh, they will not become uh, mentally and spiritually incarcerated. Uh, because after all, this is what the brain is for: is to think. But of course, if one is trapped within a fear to think outside the Western world, then one can find themselves uh, in a form of a new form of slavery, Brother Carl. Yeah, that's unfortunate. So many of our folks are trapped mentally. Ten minutes away from the top of the hour, Brother Quasey. Brother Carlos is calling from Waldorf in Maryland, has a question for his online too. Brother Carlos, good morning. 
McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Good morning. Good morning, my dear brothers and dear sister. Uh, first of all, I want to con- 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 congratulate your granddaughter and I uh, hope her uh, immense success in her pursuit of education at, at Hampton and uh I hope that uh, this is a, a teachable moment for a lot of our young people out there uh, who understand that they can do many, many good things by applying themselves. Uh, right. My question has to do with drapetomania, which you just cited uh, as the concept that, the, that many Africans or slaves did not want to leave uh, the plantation. Drapetomania was a runaway, those who actually ran off the plantation. Uh, you know, they, they, they were not afraid. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. All right. My question has to be, John Henry Clark uh, has a um, uh, put out a statement that uh, religion is the deification of a people's culture mm-hmm. and, political, and political intent. Uh, and it seems like religion has been uh, co-opted and used in that way. Could you expound on that and uh, give me your insight on that, Brother Quasi? I appreciate it. Well, this term, first of all, this religion, this term is a new term, okay? And you're absolutely right. As Dr. Clark said, uh, religion is a deification of a culture, okay? One is a Catholic. Where do they go? They don't go, to, they don't go to Mecca. They don't go to Saudi Arabia. They go where? They go to Rome, all right? That's where Catholicism was started at, all right? If you're a Muslim, okay, you don't go to Rome. You go to Mecca, uh, so, again, this is what Dr. Clark meant by the deification of a culture. But without the African spirituality, there would not be any religion in the first place. And this is, unfortunately, what we don't know. As I said before, this is where we've gotten trapped and incarcerated within a 2,000-year time period. They've circumscribed our circumference to think within that time period. But, again, when we understand what the whole spirituality is really all about, it's not about the deification of somebody else. Uh, as I mentioned, if we can't see our own black divinity, this is what creates what is known as spiritual enslavement, when the enemy becomes a deity in the spiritual subconscious of our mind. Uh, so this is the importance that when we understand what, what this is all about. Uh, Dr. Ben, uh, who extensively wrote on uh, African origin of Christianity and uh, his book on our black theologians and black clergy without a black theology, all right, and many others, Right. And hold that thought right there, uh, Brother Quasi. We're going to take a short break. Let me come back and we'll pick it up with Dr. Ben's book about black theology. Family. Our guest is uh, Brother Ashwa Quasi. Call up a couple of your friends and tell them that Brother Quasi's on, on the radio. And whenever he comes into your town, wherever you are, make sure that you attend because you're going to miss some great stuff. You're going to get some knowledge this morning. You probably haven't heard anywhere else unless you've listened to Brother Ashwa Quasi or some of our other great scholars. As I mentioned, we're going to take a short break. We're back in four minutes, though, with your phone calls. Reach out to us at 800 455 7876 right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL where information is power. 
Brother Ashwa Kwesi, Brother Kwesi, the master teacher. Before we left, Brother Kwesi, you were telling us about uh, religion, going into us on religion. I'll let you finish your thought. Uh, yes, well, I spoke of Dr. Ben's book, Our Black Seminarians and Black Clergy Without a Black Theology, is Dr. Ben. He always went for the juggler vein of uh, white supremacy, and that's their religion because they pretty much uh, have uh, convinced uh, some of us that uh, the whole concept of the angelical realm was in their images. And Dr. Clark, equally a grandmaster teacher as well, peace be upon these great warrior scholars who were uncompromising, okay, to white supremacy. As uh, Dr. Clark said, they actually colonized the afterlife. So, and what he meant by that is that the Europeans put their images and representations uh, in the angelical uh, images and world, our afterlife, and made brainwashed uh, many black folks to think that this is what uh, the afterlife uh, looked like, okay? Uh, white angels and uh, this image of a white god and so forth. Uh, so, of course, this is where we find ourselves at trying to get into this afterlife, uh, and hopefully that we will make it through the uh, pearly white gates, and we've been brainwashed uh, into that whole uh, white theology that we see today, which is white supremacy uh, Christianity, uh, seeing their images representation, which is a lot of this is a distortion, Brother Carl, from the ancient monuments and temples and a corruption of ancient African spirituality that goes back thousands of years before the Europeans were even on the scene. And uh, that's the importance of returning back to Kemet so we can see this, and also the fear that many Europeans have with us even returning back to Africa, Brother Carl. Uh, they don't like to see uh, us in Africa because they see that there's going to be an awakening, there's going to be a freedom, there's going to be a nehest, there's going to be an African spiritual uh, awakening to who we are as an African people on seeing these great monuments and temples and seeing many of the spiritual stories that predate what the Europeans have wrote about where they literally copied and plagiarized, uh, which I've talked about many of these things uh, generally around the holidays because that's the time that we are more, most captivated into the deification of uh, European Western culture. Uh, so this is the importance of understanding this. But, of course, when we're not uh, – uh, or we don't want to be free, then, of course, we, want, we have a mental rejection. Uh, but until we find ourselves uh, deifying our own black divinity and uh, exposing this to our children, uh, this, this is where we find our freedom. This is where we start to build as, uh, as a people. When uh, we look at European Jews, okay, why do they return back to uh, Israel with their children? To empower them into their Jewishness, okay? They have to return back to Israel. So equally, uh, when you take in consideration what has happened to us in our Ma'afa and the kidnapping and enslaving and the taking away of our history and our, our black spiritual divinity, then again, we equally have to return back to Africa. So you have a whole lot of forces out there now that are still trying to keep us in this mental and psychological enslavement and um, only trying to make some of us think that our history starts right here in America with slavery. Our history does not start here. Uh, we as an African people, we did a lot of great things here, but it doesn't start here, and we can't start our history here. We have to return back to the African continent and back to the uh, ancient monuments and that I refer to as the books in stone that validate. There's no place on the planet Earth that you can find and walk through books in stone of many spiritual ideas and religious ideas and uh, even when we see in Western academia, where these things were literally plagiarized from, Brother Carl. And uh, that's the importance of a returning back. When Dr. Ben wrote his book, The Cultural Genocide in the Black African Studies Curriculum, and again, in that he speaks of the fact that uh, where now we find the Europeans who want to take over 
uh, a lot of the black studies programs on the university campuses, okay, uh, they want to take control in teaching that back in the 80s uh, uh, when we were lecturing in many universities in the 90s. Uh, this is what the Europeans saw. They saw that awakening, that nehes that was taking place in African people during this time. And they feared that awakening because, again, you can't control, you can't control a free mind. When a mind is free, then that mind can go way beyond. It cannot be controlled by a European white supremacy system. And uh, so that was a very powerful book that he wrote on the cultural genocide in the black African studies curriculum. And that's still going on in uh, everything that we do uh, in life, uh, especially when things are coming up right now. I know earlier you were talking about the movies uh, before I came on. And uh, the, like, for instance, uh, Denzel Washington, you know, like he was going to uh, play a uh, Hannibal. And now you have here in the Maghreb region, uh, you have where the Arabs came across uh, that region and enslaved Africans that region, and now you have Arabs are trying to take the history of Africa and uh, don't want uh, Denzel Washington to play Hannibal. Uh, I think there was a few years ago, I think they had Will Smith was going to play Taharka. I would like to see uh, Taharka uh, on the movies. Okay, they can't argue about him, but again, uh, even Hannibal and the history of Hannibal. In fact, there was a there was a uh, History Channel was on the other day, and I was watching it, and I was talking to Mary Ra about it, and how these Europeans got on there. And, of course, they're showing uh, Hannibal as an Arab-looking guy. And uh, then they're talking about wh where his elephants came from. And they're speaking of way in uh, Morocco, that elephants came from Morocco. Well, I've been to Maserat. Maserat is in Sudan, Brother Carl. And I saw where the Kushite Africans trained elephants for warfare because that, that was the ancient tank of the ancient world of the African Kushites, like Africans like Taharka. And uh, in the Nubian Museum in Aswan, that we take our groups every year, they have a little model of an African Kushite on the elephant, and I expose to our group that this is the ancient tank of the ancient world. And this is also where Hannibal, okay, got his trained elephants from the Kushites. But Kush was never considered one time, especially when you, the fact that Kush used elephants for warfare. They never said it in that documentary. So now Europeans are now trying to take African history, as we know the whole uh, story that was going on about the whole Cleopatra story, even though that was around the Ptolemaic period, and I already talked about it before. But again, never getting deep into African history, okay? Only dealing with the perimeters or, or time period when Europeans were on the scene. All right, but not getting deep into the African history, as we talked about Nefertari, okay, the first, and also many other African queens and uh, African Nisus or African kings going back thousands of years. Uh, but today, who's controlling a lot of this history in Egypt today are these European Egyptologists. And these European Egyptologists want to claim the history of ancient Egypt and trying to neutralize uh, Africans, okay, uh, and our ancestors uh, who go back thousands of years before their time period. And uh, this started, uh, I can't say in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s, because it can go all the way back to Martin Delaney. It can go all the way back to David Walker, who David Walker even told us in the David Walker appeal. I mean, uh, that uh, Dr. Jacob Carruthers in his book, the Intellectual Warfare, who he mentioned in his book what David Walker said, that Kemet, this was the foundation, okay, of us returning back to the ancient history of ancient Kemet that played a major role in our liberation as an African people because we can validate it from the books in stone 
this is nothing like it on the planet Earth. And it did not start in Europe. It started right there on the African continent. And so, but now we see that there's an ongoing, there's an onslaught now trying to remove African people from many of the areas of uh, ancient history. And, uh, and this has a lot to do with the European Egyptologists, okay, Brother Carl, uh, who uh, during the early 90s when they were trying to uh, stop the whole African-centered movement during this time. So that's why, you know, we can't find ourselves in cahoots with these people because, as I mentioned before, Anne Roth, who was a European Egyptologist at Howard University, said we must train, okay, uh, black students about uh, R, meaning their Egyptology, all right? So you see that they, they got a plan here, all right, to make sure that they take over this whole history and neutralize it. And uh, so this is an ongoing process, and we have to be aware of this, Brother Carl. Well, let me jump in and ask you this question because you you mentioned you you mentioned your granddaughter that you took to 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 Kemet with you, but also you've taken back doctors, you've taken uh, ministers, religious ministers. What are some of the reactions when they see the writings on the walls in these temples? What they thought they knew, well, they didn't know. Can you well, share that with us? Well, they're they're in awe, oh, okay, of it because you can't. It's one thing, you can believe in a whole lot of things, Brother Carl. Okay, as Dr. Penn used to say, you know, uh, you can believe you can stand in front of a Mack truck going 75 miles an hour down the street. Okay, if it, you know, but uh, what's it going to do if it hits you? It's going to run you over, you're dead. All right, but you can believe, you, can, you know, you'll survive it. That's your belief, but that's, that doesn't make it facts. All right, we know what the facts are. So uh, many who see on the temples, their brain, that cerebral organ, got to do what it's supposed to do, think. Okay, they can see that here these many of these stories that are on these release, and that's what we expose to the group. Okay, we have lectures. Okay, before we even get to the temple, all right, uh, we lecture uh, on site. Uh, many of these reliefs, uh, many of the typical uh, European guide, or not European guides, but the guides that the Egyptian guides that they have over there, they don't reveal this to the people. All right, uh, mainly because most of the tours are Europeans. As I've said on many occasions, uh, many of these uh, Egyptian guys don't want to offend them, okay, when they expose what, uh, where Europeans got many of their stories from. You can see it carved in stone. So many brothers and sisters who return back to us, they go on to do uh, bigger and, and better things. Uh, they're able to, some have exposed this, okay, to their parishioners. Uh, but again, keep in mind, it's been 400 years we've been into this, Brother Carl, all right? So sometimes bringing it back where people are not there themselves, they're still on this plantation, like Harriet Tubman said. She said, I could have freed thousands of slaves if they knew they were slaves, all right? So again, returning back to the Neil plantation of today and exposing this to brothers and sisters, that's why we have the lectures. That's why we uh, bring the visual documentation so brothers and sisters can see it uh, for themselves. Uh, because images shape our reality. After all, we have televisions in our house and so forth. But, of course, going back there and walking in the temple, and, that's, and they are truly these netherheads or divine houses, as our ancestors referred to it as. These are truly books in stone, Brother Carl. They wrote endlessly everywhere in the most ancient language. As my granddaughter, uh, Jadim, she, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> she pointed out the Medunetra, okay, the oldest language on the planet Earth. I'm just getting over cold here, so you know it's the wintertime here. So, again, yes, yeah, so you're in awe. And um, the objective is to open up that which is that which is already in us, Brother Carl. 
which is dormant. You know, when I made my first trip in 1981, I did not know this knowledge, Brother Carl. But the knowledge was already there. As I always quote Dr. Richard King as he refers to the genetic memory bank, it's already there. But in many cases, that genetic memory bank is locked up, okay, through the self-hatred, okay, through all type of negative images, okay. That's why Europeans have a fear when we start to have this African awakening, uh, even our identity. That's the most important thing in, in uh, seeing who we are as a people, is to get out of this, these negative images and names that they put on us to start on that plantation, the N-word, okay, and all this thing. As long as we're doing that, they know the slave is still here, all right? That Neil slave is here today. That slave that was on the plantation is still here today as long as we have a negative connection to ourselves. And that's the projection that they put on put in everything, whether it's in the movies. Uh, so when we come with information like this, it's a big fear, uh, knowing that there may be an awakening. They've seen that many brothers and sisters, okay, through our history, who have gone over and beyond the call uh, once they, uh, this knowledge has uh, been revealed to them. And there's been many of our ancestors, okay, who have uh, brought this information down to us, but we have not studied them, all right? Uh, we, we get caught too much in a pop culture, all right? And then we have a denial. You have a lot of organizations that are coming out now. I wonder if the CIA is involved in this. you got, you know, people who are, uh, who are trying to deny Africa, uh, Adolf's movements and other uh, organizations, okay, trying to do everything to uh, escape from being Africans. Again, want to stay on the plantation, Brother Carl. Yeah, that's sad. We got some more folks who want to talk to you, but we got to take a short break here. 800 450 7876. Speak to Brother Ashwa Kwesi. We're back in four minutes with your phone calls right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, Ashra Kwesi, the master teacher, one of our griots, our scholars. He's on the radio right now. Call up a couple of friends and let them know that Brother Kwesi's on the radio. Brother Kwesi, you got some people who want to talk to you at 20 minutes after the top of the hour. Howard's uh, calling from Los Angeles. He's part of the Wake Up Squad. He's on line two. Good morning, Howard. Good morning. How are you doing? The Wake Up, the wake up Squad. <laughs> yeah, we out here at 3 o'clock in the morning to catch calls, so, you know, we're dedicated out here. Um, okay. Well, I'd like to know. Uh, well, I'd like to know. Um, you, you, are you familiar with the Khan Tiki Exposition? I'm sorry. Say that again. The Khan There's a lot of noise going on in your phone and so forth. Oh, really? A lot of background, oh. lot of background noise are carrying on. Mm-hmm. Okay, I tell you what. Yeah, turn that off in the background, Howard. Go ahead. Okay. I uh, well, the Khan. I was was he familiar with the Khan Tiki Exposition? My dear Thoradol back in the day. Oh, Thoradol, yeah, he did expeditions uh, to validate that Africans came across the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, uh, he uh, this, these papyrus boats that he observed in the Cairo Museum. In fact, uh, our uh, educational tours to Ethiopia that we did for many years, um, I actually ex- uh, show brothers and sisters where these uh, papyrus boats are still made up in the highlands of Ethiopia and Lake Tana. And uh, so to show the origin of these papyrus boats, where it starts deep in Africa, with many of the concepts that we see 
started deep in Africa and was carried down that fallopian tube of the Nile Valley, uh, which is called uh, uh, the Nile to date, our ancestors referred to as Happy. So uh, these papyrus boats, these are the boats that uh, Heyerdahl validated that Africans came across the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, so, again, this is long before old Chris and the boys came across the Atlantic Ocean. But also we can see that um, in West Africa, uh, Bubakari, uh, our educational pro uh, programs we did back in the 90s to Ghana, there you, there's documentation where Bubakari eagerly came across the Atlantic Ocean. So uh, when old Chris and the boys came down the west coast of Africa, they already knew about the land to the west because Africans told them about the land to the west. But Heiderdahl and his raw expedition, that he, uh, there was, a, uh, in fact, a documentary uh, on that uh, quite a few years ago. And, of course, uh, they did not expose that a lot uh, because this is uh, where white supremacy have exposed the whole Columbus story and want people to keep in, uh, uh, indoctrinated into the fact that Columbus discovered America when uh, Europeans didn't discover anything. After all, people were already there. Every time Europeans go somewhere, they claim they discovered this and discovered that, even so they discovered the beginning of the now. Okay. So, yes, the Raleigh expedition, Heiderdahl, uh, proved that Africans came across the Atlantic Ocean. Another question I like to bring The old Mac heads are there. Yeah. Let me, in fact, these massive old Mac heads, African heads are there. And Europeans made up all kinds of excuses uh, uh, when they saw the phenotype of the African heads, okay, and saw the nose, okay, the wide nose and thick lips. Uh, and they said that the, the stones fell over and over a period of years. That's what made the, the face look that way. So we're, talk, we're talking about Europeans are psychopaths. So through their psychopathic racism and white supremacy, they'll do anything to deny the African origin, showing that, hey, African people had already did that, been there long before they came out of the caves of Europe. And that's of their own story in terms of uh, them living in caves when African civilization was going on. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Uh, did you uh, also, I, I, was, I read Ivan Ventura's book that came before Columbus, you know, the, yes, about great, the Africans. Great, great, great book. Mm -hmm. It was a good book. And he, he, uh, it's, it's other proof that they came because... They found cocaine and tobacco in the mummy's tissues, and so cocaine and uh, tobacco are indigenous to the Western Hemisphere. Well, even looking at the murals, okay, when you look at the, the murals, and there's images like an elephant. There's no elephants, okay, in the Americas. That means somebody had images of elephants, okay. Also, you see the jaguar, all right, the priests, okay, the Mayan priests, and they have these jaguar, okay, like in Kemet. You have the Sim priests. Here they have what is, is the leopard skin, all right? That's what they wore. But in the Mayans, they have the jaguar, but it's the same identical thing as the priest of Kemet would, uh, would, uh, excuse me, would wear, okay, when you look at those murals, all right? So that tells us that when you look at the obvious, but Europeans would do everything. When they see that, 
then of course they don't even talk about it in the documentaries. When you see the obvious, they'll go on to something else. All right. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, even with the OMAC heads, they said extraterrestrials came and did that. Mm-hmm. And I always make a joke out of it. Said, well, it came from the star system Blacktica. <laughs> right. We got a bunch of folks who want to talk to you, Brother Quasey. Twenty-five at the top there. Thanks, Howard. Thanks for your call. Sean John's in Baltimore, on line three. Sean John, you're on with Brother Quasey. Yes, Carl. Can you hear me? Oh, we can sure. hear you, brother. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> Excuse um, my cough. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thanks for your, all the information that you bring in, Carl. I appreciate you too. Also, getting right to it, Quasi. Can you explain to me? I, and I know the answer to the question. I have family members who are religious people that read the Bible, they follow, and actually, like I tell them that if you follow, you follow the, a European white supremacist um, system in the Bible. Scriptures are being made by, um, they read these scriptures. Can you explain to me when people read scriptures out of the Bible that was written by European white people going back, not, you know, when we don't know our history, we still learn, some of us are still, we are still learning. But you, can you explain to me when people say, oh, scripture, this scripture of uh, John says this, can you explain to me the scriptures, and that's coming from a European perspective from the Bible that a lot of uh, black folks are, are reading? Can you explain that to me? All right. Thanks, hey, Anjan. Yeah, we, we've, uh, we've had Kim universities on Carl's show many times in terms of the origins of the Bible. may have to come back and do it again. But just briefly, uh, keep in mind, where was Europeans' first Bibles written at? They, weren't, they were not written in Europe. They were written where? In Kemet, in Egypt. Okay, uh, Egypt, in fact, is a Greek name. Okay, our, our ancestors called it Kemet. All right, this is during the time of the Ptolemies. All right, when they were studying in Kemet, they were there for 300 years. All right, when we see the plunder of the temples that were done and the robbing of those temples of the papyruses, even where you get the name paper from, this is where the Ptolemies eventually built an Alexandria li- library that Alexander, who, the barbarian who came in in 332 B.C., who wanted a library to be built to house all that was his wish to house all of the Kemetic knowledge of Kemet. All right, but after his death, it was the Ptolemies who started to build this library. And this is they studied for 300 years the knowledge. That's why when you go to the temples of Kemet, you can see where concepts that we see in the Bible were distorted and corrupted into a European story. So when you look at the Septuagint version of the Bible, where was it written at? In Egypt. When you look at the, the, the Koine version of the Bible, there were many Bibles. That's the other thing. Most people think there's only one Bible, all right? Every nation that came to power, all right, wrote their Bible. That's why King James, okay, he wrote his version of the Bible. That's why I called King James diligently compared and revised. Well, an intelligent question would be asked, compared to what? Compared to the many millennians down through the ages of all the Bibles, going all the way back to the earliest spiritual writings, going back to ancient Africa. And this is where we can't see because we've been indoctrinated. We've been brainwashed, okay? We've been mentally and psychologically enslaved to the point that this is the Word of God, all right? So when you go and read that book, and I've always brought up this because here, when you look at the phenotype of African people, we find in Leviticus, if you have a flat nose, you can't give praise to God. Okay, I think that's Leviticus chapter 21, verse 18, all right, or reverse it, 18 or 21. All right, so again, these are, these are white supremacists, all right, 
who are writing the Bible for the deification of themselves, okay, and their own culture, okay, and also their own deity. That's why the images and representations are always in their image, all right? But we, again, but when you take away a people's representation of their own black divinity, you take away our history. If we knew our history from the very beginning, if we knew what our ancestors did thousands of years ago, we wouldn't accept that. But when they, but they whipped our history out of us. If I go all the way back to roots and you see that one scene of Kunta Kinte, and they whipped him until he was called Toby. So when we understand that, that's what we see. We got a Toby history, okay? We got a, a Toby theology, all right? Because they whipped Africa out of us. And now the time to reclaim our Africanists, as uh, uh, Blyden also pointed out. We have to go back and reclaim our Africans, but of course, in the reclaiming of our African, our Africanists, that means freedom. And to this day, they're still not going to let us have that freedom. And what's that freedom today? Mental and spiritual freedom. And when I open up with the Nahest that our ancestors referred to, that awakening to a higher African spiritual consciousness, not a slave consciousness. As, no. uh, in fact, this is Black History Month, and we speak of Carter G. Woodson, okay? who uh, started Black History Week, okay, in 1926, that led into Black History Month, but we got to keep it 365 days, but always like to um, read his quote that he always says, that if a people have no history, if they have no worthwhile tradition, it becomes a negligible fact in the thought of the world that they stand... Good morning, folks. I'm Earl Kirk. Here's the latest from New... And Brother Quish, we've got some more folks want to talk to you, 29... 29 minutes away from the top of our brother Nkosi is joining us. He's in Chicago. He's on line four. Brother Nkosi, you're on with Brother Kwesi. Okay, Brother Jumbo, Nkosi. my brothers. Uh, you know, you spoke of African genetic memory. I used to have these strange dreams about uh, a gold background reflecting like red and blue and white with letters on it. And then I heard somebody describe uh, I think it was Brother Browder described uh, 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 inside the pyramids. But back to your point about uh, geographical enslavement, uh, it can be exemplified by the fact today that we have black people who live in certain neighborhoods that live in such a restricted manner. They never leave a certain block or never leave a certain city. And that's just an extension of, of what you described as the geographic slavery. But uh, my question is, were the Twa'imbuti uh, among the groups that were trained to observe over thousands of years? I mean, according to what I remember, there were groups of Africans that were trained to observe the stars and chart the path of the stars and, and compare them to events for thousands of years, which established a true science of astronomy or, or, and astrology. And uh, c could you elaborate on that? 
Uh, yes, well, astrophysicists... Actually, well, uh, hold that thought right there, Brother Quasi, because we're going to take a short break. I'll let you respond to Nkosi's question on astrophysics when we get back, because we're going to take our last break. Family, you want to join this conversation? I guess Brother Ashra Quasi, one of our uh, top grills, our top scholars, he's a chemitologist. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W-O-L, where information is power. And good morning, family. It's uh, 22 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, the brother Ashra Kweshi, one of our griots in our community. Before we go back to him, let me just remind you, tomorrow's Friday, so tomorrow we're going to give you another chance to free your mind, think for yourself. Some of the things that brother Kweshi has been t- teaching us this morning. Check in with us right here in Baltimore at 6 a.m. Eastern Time on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. So, brother Kweshi, I'll let you respond to that last caller from uh, Chicago, brother Inc. Uh, yes, he was speaking of the knowledge of the uh, early African astrophysicists. Well, keep in mind, yes, a- African people were Afro- uh, astrophysicists observed the cosmos for thousands of years. In fact, in fact, Count Boni, uh, in his book *Ruins of the Empire*, even talked about that uh, it was Africans uh, from the Sudan uh, or ancient Kush who observed the universe for thousands of years. In fact, in the uh, early '80s, uh, being with Dr. Ben and going to uh, the Sudan. One beautiful thing about that event, the stars hung there like light bulbs. Uh, we were lost in the Sahara, lost in, in the Sudan at that time. But one beautiful thing about that event, the stars hung there like light bulbs, clearly told me who mapped out the stars. I've been to Europe many times. I haven't seen uh, hardly the sun, much less the stars, because it's always overcast. So that pre- pretty much told us who mapped that out. But you can go to the Dogon, and the Dogon have great history of being astrophysicists like uh, Amandingi. Uh, who observed uh, many cosmic events, and one of the major cosmic events was around Polo Tolo and Siji Tolo. Uh, Polo Tolo was a dark star that you can't see with the naked eye. Well, uh, they, about, uh, I don't know, about 70, 80 years ago, they built a telescope, and they were able to see this dark star that the European astronomers could not see. And then Carl Sagan said, well, it was a coincidence that Africans, the Dogon, knew about this star. Uh, so the Dogon, they actually have their choreography. They actually dance around this whole event, cosmic event, when uh, that dark star called Polo Tolo rotated around Siji Tolo. And they actually put the stars on their head and dance out this whole cosmic event. So Europeans have been amazed about the fact that how the Dogon knew about this knowledge and they did not have a, uh, uh, telescopes and all the things that they have today. But again, uh, Amandingi said he was able to... to look into the universe, send his spirit out. So that's some very powerful knowledge. Also, he spoke of the Twa, that the Twa were some of the early people who came from the beginning and now. So I know you got a lot of other speakers I can go on with this, Brother Carl. Yeah, Yeah, we got a bunch of folks wanting to talk to you. Uh, Let's go to line one. Paul's out in in the U.K. calling from London, has a question for you. Paul, good morning. You're on with Brother Quasey. Grand Rising, Baba Quasey, and uh, Grand Rising to your guest, Ashwell Quasey. Uh, Living perpendicular, rising like raw, yes. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say... 
they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Absolutely. Um, Ashokwesi, um, please, Baba Ashokwesi, do you have in your library any books in any African language? Uh, and if you do, what books are they? If you don't, um, don't you think not everybody's going to get to Africa? That's that's the reality of things. It's just the, as it is. But it would be a good idea that we start from where we're at, meaning that do you not think that... Uh, Africans on the continent who have who have their own language should start promoting that language and encouraging that language in a written form. And that's my question. Yeah, well, in Kiswahili, uh, they do have it in a written form. Uh, I have a book on Kiswahili. I have the book on uh, ancient Medu nature. Uh, so yes, I agree that we yes we should promote uh, African languages, uh, having African names, and uh, start to, if nothing else, greet each other in African names. Okay. Or briefly say African names, all right? So, uh, yes, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Paul. 18 away from the top. Uh, JR's in Ohio. JR's on line five. Good morning, JR. You're on with Brother Ashwa Kwesi. Ashe, thank you. Um, uh, Baba Girl, Carl, and uh, I, know, I know time is short. Uh, yes, greetings, Master Teacher. I do give thanks for um, for uh, Carter G. Woodson in the way I give thanks for uh, the late great uh, Baba Kurt in this region, um, who had, is the reason who I know who you are and many master teachers here did a great work in the Midwest um, as it pertains to uh, introducing many of us to the likes of your teachings and the other great scholars on which you stand. That said, um, real quick, in the t- uh, how you we've already talked about today, spoken about the great co-opting by the pale face and how they're running uh, in fear everywhere is how, you know, the things that we are learning and, and starting to put more into practice. So whether that's them or even those folks over there that's done co-opted the land of Kemet. In the same way, in your observation and thinking, do you feel like that is from the same place of fear and deviance that these um, uh pale faces or saying things along the lines, they're calling themselves Jewish, and they're saying things like, the biggest fear that we need to be worried about right now is the black man. I mean, real statements being made floating around in the ether. So I just wondered if you have any thoughts on that being kind of in that same rationale, thinking that everything that they can worry about in the world, they worried about black people and and putting this lie of uh, quote-unquote anti-Semitism uh, squarely on us. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that, if any. Yeah, yeah there's a lot, a lot in that. Uh, speaking of peace be upon her, our uh, grandmaster teacher, Dr. Francis Welsing, who spoke on uh, that uh, whole genetic annihilation that Europeans feared. And uh, so, yes, there has been a fear uh, from the very beginning, okay, uh, of uh, – of African people, of black people, okay, our history, uh, seeing that we predate their history by thousands of years. Everywhere they go, they start to dig, and they dig up, and they find us, okay, going back to Wiesner when he was digging up in Cush, and, and they make up all kinds of stories and say, oh, 
it's obvious you can clearly see that this is a black face that he's he's digging up. But he says uh, this is a a, uh, a a black Caucasian. <laughs> okay, so uh, yes. you know, so Seligman and all the others, you know, have made up these stories when they see the people are black, so they just make up terms. All right, this is part of this whole. Uh, psychopathic racism. So yes, there's been a fear because, like I said before, we talked about many things. Everywhere they've gone, they saw that uh, African people, black people, were already there thousands of years before they even got there. Okay, before they were even on the scene. That's why they put out all these things. They discovered this and uh, discovered that. And what was the other part of your question? Well, specifically that they're saying uh, black people are the most dangerous thing to these so-called. Um, well, African people, African people did not make weapons of mass destruction. African people do not have uh, uh, atomic and hydrogen bombs, all right, uh, to blow up the world, all right? So I say the most dangerous people on the planet Earth are the ones who have weapons of mass destruction that can blow up the world, all right? So to say African people are the black people are the most dangerous people on the planet Earth, then you have to look at the history of Europeans' wars that they had even among themselves. When we look at the atomic bombs that were dropped on the plant on on this planet on on japan it was your white folks who dropped those bombs not black people who dropped those bombs all right when you look at the extermination of people okay uh this this happened okay whether we're looking at tasmanian it wiped out all of them okay or in other parts of the world all right we look at the little island way down in the south pacific okay where they took and dropped a atomic bomb on that island and put them back on it uh, the melanesian people to see what the radiation I would do to them in case they're using their island for a guinea pig. So let's look at the history of Europeans and see who's the most dangerous people uh, on this planet Earth. That's, what, that's all we have to look at, their own MO. Now, this Semitic thing, this is, again, these, Europe, these are European Jews, all right? They're not, right? they're not even Semitic people, all right? Uh, if anything, if we want to use that term that they created, okay, the Semitic, Hamitic, and, and, and uh, Jephite, they'd be more Jephites. And these are terms that they made up, okay? Uh, we see the genocide, okay, going on right now in our face, all right, where they literally wiping out the Palestinians. And we have to look at that because that's their M.O., all right? Uh, what they did to the indigenous people of this land, what happened to African people, we can still see that's part of their own M.O. So when Biden said he's a Christian Zionist, that shows that that's still in their DNA, all right? Yeah. That's still part of them. All right. So we, you know, getting caught in this uh, Democrat and Republic thing and see it's the D in the, the it's in their DNA. OK, of uh, wiping out and creating genocide on people as part of their nature. And I'm not saying, you know, just look at the history. Don't go along with what I'm saying. Just look at their own history. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you, Baba. Asante Sana. Thank you, Jr. Uh, Brother Kwesi, the trips that you take to Egypt, to Kemet, what can we look forward to taking those trips with you? Well, again, we we'll go back to that in the Hest, that awakening again. That's what it's for. That's what we. That's why we said from the very beginning we call it the Kemet New Know Thyself Educational Tour. Mary Ryan and I, okay, we come with that spiritual balance. She's the Nitter Hemp, a divine wife. I'm the Nitter Hedge, divine husband. That spiritual dialectical laws of opposites. And again, a trip of a lifetime, okay? That's what we actually advertise it as, okay? We, we have seen what has happened over the years with brothers and sisters who have made this, this, uh, this tour with us. Uh, it's a great inspiration and motivation, and brothers and sisters are going, going on to do bigger and better things. That's our objective, okay? And uh, we are the ones who are in charge of the tour. 
all right? And everything that we do, we give brothers and sisters our book, a historical outline. You're well-equipped. And all the details and preparation, you're not going over empty-handed, all right, just taking a tour. No, it's not going to be that. It's a whole educational experience uh, that we have on this whole program. And uh, so many, many, many years of, uh, of doing this. And this year, uh, we have, in fact, we have to do two tours, Brother Carl, because our tours have gotten you know, so many brothers and sisters are coming. We have to do two tours in the summer. And our first tour, uh, that would be on July 13th to July 27th, okay, 15-day tour. And then our second tour, July 29th to August uh, 12th. And uh, we also have a cruise where we cruise to Nubia. So it's 115 people that can be on the cruise. So we have to do 115 on each tour. So every year we've taken over 200 and some people every year, Brother Carl, uh, on this educational program. And we see that, that spiritual African consciousness, that nehest that has taken place when brothers and sisters return back, you, you know, going on a proper educational experience, we can see this awakening. And that's that's the whole objective, okay, right. for us to go on and do bigger and uh, better things. I don't know if we uh-huh. have enough time, but i got a couple uh, of places. Well, uh, before you do that, Sister Denise Muhammad wants to speak to you real quick. She's on line one, calling from Richmond, Virginia. Salam alaikum, Sister Denise. Salam alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. And Hotel Dr. Crazy. This is Sister Denise. I know if you remember me, we brought you to Richmond, Virginia, back in the early 90s, Sister Yana and I. Um, oh, we didn't okay. get, is, that, is that where I lectured yeah. in the city hall? Was that the city hall? Yeah, there was yeah. one place in Richmond. We Richmond took the city, city hall over. Yes, sir. <laughs> we took we didn't the city hall to... over. Yeah I, was, yeah, I was shocked by that. <laughs> <laughs> I lectured right yes, in the sir. city hall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that I was the time that. I was working to get the children off of landfills in school. Mm-hmm. But... um. Right. Sister Yana now has gone on to the ancestor realm and peacefully. And I just wanted to let you know, yes, sir, that um, we, my, I have little boys that I'm working with, and they came to me with all these so-called educational deficiencies, which they have no deficiencies now. I'm using your DVDs. We're teaching from them. And I also want to let you know how impressed I am with your granddaughter. She has such a beautiful spirit, and she's so intelligent. Y'all have done a wonderful job with her. And let her know that Allah is going to bless her to hook up with her sisters and brothers with the same mindset that she has, so she don't have to worry. So we just have to continue to work. And I remember Dr. Ivan Van Sertiman going to see him one, one year, said that those noses that were blown off, they are in the back. They are kept in the back of the British Museum. I just wanted to share that, and I want to thank you so much for all that you do, and I pray to catch your next tour and see if I can bring my little boys. Peace. Salam alaikum. Many thanks, my sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes, sir. And send the greetings to your beautiful wife. Oh, I sure will. I'm sorry that she was not able to be on the show. You know, we're uh, you know, taking, care of, uh, taking care of our parents. That's the main thing. We don't want somebody else to take care of them. We have to do it. Yes, sir. That's right. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, Thanks, Sister Denise. So, so Brother Quasi, when is the next? Is is still any? Is it time for folks who want to go with you? Is still any, uh, yes, any we spaces? Still have, we still have uh, we still have room. We're uh, a little over half full on each tour. Uh, so, brothers and sisters are are signing up. Uh, you can go on our website at kemetnu.com. That's k e m e t n u dot com. You have the registration there. You have the brochure there, the itinerary, the day-by-day itinerary that we have every day, okay. our lectures and everything. Uh-huh. 
Thank you. All right. Before we let you go, so we want you to give our love to uh, Sister Mary, Mary Rock because we know she's busy because we'd love to have her when she, whenever she gets some time, we'd love to have her. I know she's real busy. We're uh, taking care of our parents and also with, with the tours. So what time, what, what, what are the dates? Can you give us the dates real quick? Okay, again, the date stuff would be July 13th to July 27th. Okay, that's the first tour. The second tour, July 29th to August 12th. Okay, those are the two tours. And then also, uh, I know you're syndicated, Brother Carl, so if those are in Seattle, Washington listening, uh, contact Brother Haru at 425-492-5009. I'll be in Seattle, Washington on March uh, 2nd, and I'll be in do I have time to say some others? Yeah, yeah, real quick. we got about 30 uh, seconds. Okay, I'll be back in D.C. with Brother, Brother Baruch, okay? Uh, that's uh, 240-417-4301. Uh, that'll be on April uh, 20th. And I'll be in Canada, too, at the end of the uh, 27th. But I'll be back on your show in April, Brother Carl, so uh, we'll uh, put all the other places out there. Yeah, because we got, we got quite a few listeners in Toronto as well, in Montreal. So, Great. yeah, I'm okay. sure they have... We, Glad to know that you're coming to town. Thank you again, Brother Kwesi. Thank you for all the information you shared with us this morning. All right, Brother Carl. It's always an honor, Brother. You know, you definitely have the Master's School in Education for Liberation. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right, family, we're done for the day. Stay strong, stay positive, please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock. It's an open phone Friday right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.